welcome to a very special tribute to Sidney Poitier on The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, voiceover artist uh, here and co-host of The Cinephiles. And, um, you know, um, just sad that we are back doing another tribute, Steve, for another great artist. And uh, unfortunately, that's part of doing this show, my man. It, it, it certainly is. And, I, you know, if we're going to honor someone, yeah. certainly Sidney Poitier deserves it deserves more than one tribute, which is what we're going to do. So so today we're going to kind of talk about his life as an introduction. And we're re-releasing our episode on In the Heat of the Night, which was from way back in 2017. Yeah. Um, and it uh, and it actually we did it right around the time of uh, Charlottesville. Mm. So there was certainly issues that related to In the Heat of the Night when we recorded this thing. Um, yeah. One thing that's going to be a bit weird is. We did do a little bit of biographical material on Sidney Poitier in that episode. So yeah. a little bit of this will be repeated, but this is an opportunity to go much deeper. And I, I just want to start, John, with yeah. how did you first come to Sidney Poitier? Do you know what your first memories of him are? Yeah, I think it was Uptown Saturday Night. Because <laughs> I was, you know, and I know I know this person is persona non grata now, but at that time when I was growing up, Bill Cosby was such a huge comedic influence. And I grew up with the Fat Albert show and I loved uh, his standups whenever I could get it on cassette or on record. And so one of the shows that they would show on or one of the films they would show on Saturdays uh, when you would get the martial arts films, you also got the black exploitation films or the black films in combination. And Uptown Saturday Night was one of those films. And I remember that was my first access to Sidney Poitier. And he is funny as hell in that movie. And so I thought he was a comedian when I first saw him with him and Bill Cosby. And it wasn't until later when I started getting to studying films as a teenager that I saw In the Heat of the Night. And that changed everything. Mm. And that was when I understood who Sidney Poitier was, what he represented, and got and dove in deep to watch as many films of his as I could, Defiant Ones, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Lilies of the Field, Patch of Blue. All those things were so great. And they called me the, the sequel to it. So, yeah, that's how I came to Sidney Poitier. How about you? Um, I, you know what? I hadn't thought about it, but I actually think mine's the same as you. I think I saw those, <laughs> those Cosby movies yeah, first um, because they were just around when growing up. And yeah. then for me, the first of the more serious ones is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which, right. which is the movie that we're going to explore in greater depth next. So yeah. that's what we're prepping for. That's an incredible film. And then it's the same thing. I went back. And, man, the one I remember, I know In the Heat of the Night is the one that hit you the most. Yeah. The Defiant Ones, man. That one right. really hit me. Yeah. hard too um and of course what i didn't know until researching just now is one of the other first places i saw him i had totally forgotten that he directed stir crazy oh right yes yeah. that's another one certainly absolutely I had no concept that he directed that film no. until much later in life but i was one of my favorite comedies growing up yeah he is a really fascinating person and mm -hmm. i didn't really realize just how humble his beginnings were mm -hmm. i mean i knew that he had come from Baha the bahamas a, I didn't know that his family were farmers and that they he was actually born in Miami. Yeah. And the reason that he was born in Miami is that his family would come regularly to Miami to sell tomatoes and other farm goods. And he was two months premature. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why. So he spent the first three months of his life. They didn't think he was going to live. Right. And he spent the first three months of his life in a hospital in Miami before going back to Cat Island in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. um and have, do you know much about what his early life was like no no please um so so first of all uh they believe that some of his ancestors were probably escaped slaves from haiti 
mm-hmm. partially because there's not a whole lot of Poitiers is a French name and there's mm-hmm. and Bahamas is a British colony. Um, but uh, uh, he lived on Cat Island until he was 10. Wow. And then his family moved to Nassau. And when they moved to Nassau, that is his first experience seeing any of the modern world, really. He saw his first automobile at 10 years old. Huh. That is really humble beginnings, yeah. you know. When he, he 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 moved to Miami when he was 15 years old to live with a brother. He was the youngest of seven children. Right. Um, and then he moved up to New York City at 16, got a job as a dishwasher. He was essentially illiterate when he mm-hmm. came to the United States. Mm-hmm. And it was another waiter working in this restaurant where he was a dishwasher who every night after work sat down with him and taught him how to read the newspaper. Stop for a second here. Yeah. One of the things that people talk about with Sidney Poitier, and sometimes in a veiled racist way, is that he is such an incredibly eloquent, yes, um, distinguished, almost noble type person in how he speaks, how he presents the dialogue, how he delivers happiness, uh, anger, frustration, joy. It is there, and he speaks with it with such a fantastic voice. And with such a clear voice that uh, it's it's something to marvel when you watch him as an actor. And and I've seen other people use it as a veiled kind of racist comment. So the fact that he was illiterate yeah. for so long is really shocking. I mean, it, it, that's what's so amazing to me is like he is such a self-made person. Yeah. And I know that like that voice was him listening to newscasters on the radio. It was ah. like he wanted to, and it is, because you're right. I mean, I would describe him as noble. Yes. As like, yeah, like royalty. Like, I royalty. mean, he is, yeah. I mean, yeah. he is a, and yet this is this kid that grew up, you know, didn't see a, a car until he was 10, mm-hmm. was illiterate when he came to New York. And then in, it's World War II, it's 1943. He lies about his age. He was 16 years old and enlisted in the army. Wow. To yeah. serve his country. To, to serve his, his country. Well, it doesn't go exactly way the way he might have planned because <laughs> right. where he got assigned was to the VA and working with psychiatric parent, patients. My God. So this was not, this is the middle of World War II, but he is uh, working in a VA hospital. Uh, to say that he didn't like it is a, a strong understatement. He felt that the way that patients were being treated was absolutely horrendous. And yeah. he basically faked a mental illness in order to get a discharge. Wow. under section eight wow. yeah so he even, even t- acting back then Steve. yeah exactly and that and he and this is not a secret like this right. he has said yes he did fake his way out of the army um and so now he's back in new york wants to be an actor starts working with the american negro theater at the age of 16 huh. um and one thing i saw and i didn't i'd never heard this before is that he's appar- apparently according to wikipedia mm-hmm. is that he's tone deaf which i didn't know oh, wow And basically, again, this goes into, you know, what was expected racially Mm -hmm. was they expected when people went to go see the American Negro Theater that there would be a lot of singing and dancing. Right. And Sidney Poitier couldn't sing. (laughs) And so he didn't do that well at at the beginning of his career. And then he got bad reviews and then he became really determined to become a great actor. And basically, six months later, he's on Broadway. Wow. Yeah. Um, in uh, a lead role in Lysistrata, um, he founds in 1947, he's one of the founding members of the Negro in the Arts, a committee for the Negro in the Arts, which is basically 
an organization dedicated to do, deal with what we're talking about, which is stereotypes and racial exploitation within uh, African-Americans in the arts at the time. Yeah. And then in 1949, he basically has to choose between another Broadway show and going to Hollywood because Daryl Zanuck wants him to be in No Way Out. And this is the first of many, many parts where he plays what he was criticized for, which is what came to be known as the exceptional Negro. Yeah, uh, He plays a African-American doctor who's dealing with treating a white bigoted patient played by Richard w Widmark, um, who they became really close friends after mm -hmm. that. Um, and then he goes to travel to South Africa for his next film, which is the star and cry of the beloved country, yeah. uh, which I have seen and I've read the book. And it's, it's amazing to me that that's that early in his career. Yeah. Agreed. agreed. Uh, um, and then, but his big break actually, so he's played a doctor gone to South Africa for Cry the Beloved Country, but his big break is 1955 in Blackboard Jungle where he plays a high school kid. Yeah. <laughs> well past the age of a high school kid, too. Well past, yeah. Really, yeah. Um, but then it's 58 is the Defiant Ones. Do, yeah. do you remember when you first saw it? Defiant Ones? Yeah, I saw it, as, uh, I saw it on a, uh, probably a Saturday or Sunday afternoon with my dad because my dad really loved the movie because he was a huge Tony Curtis fan. Tony mm. Curtis. He was <laughs> such a fan of Tony Curtis. And so I became by osmosis a fan of Tony Curtis, like Spartacus, all kinds of stuff, you know, some like it hot. So seeing this film really kind of affected me as well. I think the one-two combo of that film and In the Heat of the Night. And listen, this is the time when I'm becoming more aware of the racial issues in the world. And as the son of immigrants to this country, the I, you know, whose father got made fun of for his accent, who was called a wetback in high school and in mm -hmm. middle school by white kids. I had this experience. And so I didn't have the black experience, but I had the experience of being made to feel as an other, as lesser than by white people. And so seeing that movie and seeing the dynamics that go on and this idea that, hey, this guy is super racist, super against him, and that he is giving, Sidney Poitier is giving as good as he gets, if not more, in this battle with Tony Curtis was an incredible film to explore as a statement on our society, right? That that's, this is the way it feels like. And black people need to even work, work even harder just to get white people to notice them and see them as equals. And it isn't until the white person finally realizes through numerous experiences because he gets to know the black person. He gets to know uh, what he's like through the different experiences finally sees him as an equal. And it's a fascinating film that absolutely was about reflecting what was going on racially in our country. But you know, what's so interesting. And I, I can't, I've been trying to think of how I can say this in the mm. right way. And I, I'm not going to be able to, <laughs> but it's, it's your experience with that movie is exactly the opposite and, and exactly the same as my experience, because like for you, you know, yeah. it was, you dealt with racism directed yeah. at you. Mm -hmm. And so you saw, saw yourself in this basically with Sidney Poitier yeah, absolutely. and I'm, I'm a white kid, white Jewish kid from the suburbs who had never experienced anything remotely like this. And so it was an awakening for me too, in yeah. like the opposite sense. I mean, not that I saw myself in the Tony Curtis character necessarily, right, right. but, but more in the like, you know, that that movie literally for, handcuffs you to an issue yeah. and forces you to reckon with it throughout the film. And it's a really powerful film. And it's directed by Stanley Kramer, who is yeah. the who does who's uh, guess who's coming to dinner, which we're going to talk about uh, next week. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, the movie gets nominated. Both he and Tony Curtis gets get nominated for 
uh, best actor, which is guarantees that neither of them are going to win because yeah, they're going to yeah. steal each other's uh, uh, votes. Then he goes back to Broadway for Raisin in the Sun with Ruby D, directed by Lloyd Richards, who's one of the great uh, theater directors, directed all the August Wilson plays, I think. And this was a groundbreaking, important play when it happened. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then he does the film version of Porgy and Bess with Dorothy Dandridge, which I've never seen. Mm -hmm. um, and then he does the film version of Raisin in the Sun. Yeah. With Ruby D. With Ruby D, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which is an incredible film. And at the time that he's making that, he publicly states that he and his family who have moved to Los Angeles, they're living in, I think, Chateau Marmont because they can't rent a house in the neighborhood that they want to live in. Mm -hmm. You know, so here he is, a movie star. And yet he, he's still, you know, L.A. has all these restricted neighborhoods. Yeah, the, the supposedly liberal bastion of L.A. has all these restricted neighborhoods. Exactly. And, you know, this is something that a lot of black artists went through. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. consistently. Frank yep. Sinatra had to step in on a number of occasions. And, of course, you can have issues with how Frank and Dean talk to Sammy on stage sometimes in their shows. But certainly Sinatra made it very clear that Sammy was going to be treated in a certain way in these neighborhoods, in these hotels, and what have you. So it took those kinds of situations. Now, Sydney, uh, I think of a different, built of a different uh, substance than Sammy, yep. had no problem speaking about it forthrightly right there in the, right there in that, uh, in the interview or in the press conference, whatever he, whatever he said it at, and, and that put it on the table for people to deal with. You know? I mean, Sammy's way of dealing with it was to, to some degree, accept that he was going to be the butt of these jokes. Yeah. You know, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned to you before, but there's a, a really good episode. I think it's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast mm. where he talks about the Sammy Davis Jr. Roast, which is oh. just horribly yep. racist and yep. really, really upsetting. Yes. And I think Gladwell does a great job of, of walking the tightrope of mm -hmm. how important Sammy Davis Jr. was in terms of moving certain things forward sure. and how he became a pariah because of the way he allowed himself to be treated among the African-American community. And yeah. then what can we say about Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra for the, because on the one hand they liked him and they, they helped loved him. him. Yeah. And on the other hand, yeah. Didn't treat him that way. No. And, and especially on stage with some of those comments yeah. and whatever in, in, in Sammy dealt with it. And you could say, well, they're friends that's in. Yes, of course. You know, there, there's always ball busting amongst friends with ethnicity or with sexual orientation but not on a stage. There's a different thing when you're on a stage because that's showcasing um, something like that, you know, and, and that's and you're showing the world that this is a way a person should be treated. And I think there was uh, quite a number of mistakes, you know, because it wasn't like Sammy was making a bunch of Italian jokes, uh, no. you know, to counter, you know, using any ethnic slangs or ethnic. Uh, you're not going to make jokes about Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> Dean, yeah. you know. I mean, he'd occasionally go after Tony Bennett, but it was never to the level that they were going after him. Right. So not that Tony did. I mean, Frank and Dean. Uh, right. So it's that kind of a situation. That's why Harry Belafonte. Oh, sorry. That's why um, uh, Sidney Poitier, who was a contemporary of Harry Belafonte, right. uh, was seen as something else. You know, so when he spoke, it carried an extra level of power. Well, and he felt this huge, huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like other actors could go out and have gossip about them and have their lives sort of. And he was like, no, I have to be. Right. perfect all the time and 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 he is and it's it's just hard to point out it's like it's not like he's among the african-american movie stars he is the only oh, yeah. african-american movie star you know denzel name dropped him when oh he yeah oscar 
that tells you where he sits on the echelon of black movie stars. Yeah, it was it was him or nobody else. That's yeah. how much pressure was on him. And after that, he does Lilies of the Field, which is what won him his first Academy Award. Yeah. Uh, first African-American man to win. He's good in, Steve, but that's not the one that yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? It's like Scent of a Woman. You're like, hey, okay, but there are these other roles that he should have won for. But yeah. Well, and there's a lot of people that say, like, this was Hollywood patting themselves on the back. Uh, this was ha- Hollywood proving their liberal bona fides, mm, you know. Um, yeah, and, okay. and, and 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 by the way, I think I think this is the year Paul Newman, who had been nominated for HUD, didn't even go to the Oscars because he wanted Sidney Poitier to win. Wow. Yeah. Um, it and 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 but it's also this role where he is the perfect African American who's a victim of white racism. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's sort of how things go. And then this is the weirdest thing is. And totally not surprising. Yeah. He didn't find work for almost a year after getting the Oscar. <laughs> yeah. And the parts he was offered weren't that good. Yeah. Hollywood was like, all right, we gave it to you. Yeah. Go now away. Now come play these other roles. Now yeah. come play these small ones. Now let's chip you. Now let's knock you back down to size. Yeah. And then comes 1967. Yeah. In 1967, In the Heat of the Night, which is the film that we're going to talk about in depth in a, in a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, or... Five years in the past, to be more accurate. <laughs> um, and at the same time, guess who's coming to dinner, which we're going to talk about in a week, and to Sir with Love all in the same year. Yeah, to Sir with Love. That's the one I was trying to find earlier in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a, I mean, you talk about Jim Carrey having all three of those comedies coming yeah. out in the same year. He was an unknown other than in Living Color. That really announced him. This yep. was the ascension of Sidney Poitier after he'd already won the Oscar. This is the ascension to. I don't know what you want to say, but grand level status of acting, regardless of color, this is an incredible run of films in one year. Uh, and once again, beating, uh, once again, being nominated rather against uh, Paul Newman. Yeah. For, for, uh, oh, no, no, he, I'm sorry. No, he wasn't nominated. Sorry about that. No, but like once again, a year where Paul Newman has a nomination for Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. It's such a amazing year. And, and by the way, yeah. To Sir With Love is really good too. Yes, it is. It's I remember a, watching that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good movie. And, but again, he's also like, you know, this is the criticism and this is because mm-hmm. now it's 67 is now is like, there's the black Panthers and there's Malcolm X mm-hmm. and the, 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 the way we're thinking about civil rights and is different. And, and the younger generation is basically going that he has to play characters that are unsexed, that are perfect, that are completely non-threatening in any way. Mm-hmm. And that, and so the, the younger generation turns a little bit on Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Um, and what's really interesting, and I really didn't understand this until I looked, he doesn't act that much after that. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not yeah. that he retires. He's still acting and he definitely starts directing. As you mentioned, yeah. he did all the Cosby, a bunch of Cosby movies all the way to Ghost Dad, which is yeah. a <laughs> tremendously terrible movie. <laughs> um, he directs a lot. He acts a little bit like he did the sequel, you know, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, the sequel yeah. to In the Heat of the Night. He does a few other good. things. Um, but it's his last movie uh, in the 70s is 1977. And he doesn't yeah. act again until 1988, 11 years yeah. for Shoot to Kill. Shoot to Kill, which was, listen, one of my favorites. It's a Mine damn too. good 80s uh, thriller with Tom Berger, Kirstie Alley, and Sidney Poitier. It is damn good. It's funny. Um, I haven't watched it since probably the mid-90s. <laughs> really? Okay. But I watched it over, it was in the rotation. Because yeah. right. it was, I mean, it's not at the level of like the great action films of the late right. 80s, but 
It's totally fun. For this kind of movie, yeah. it's actually in a good group of movies that are not going to be diehard, but they're they're Im- immensely watchable and rewatchable for sure. In 91, he does Separate But Equal, which is the miniseries about oh, yeah. uh, Brown versus Board of Education and that, that decision. And uh, that was directed by and written by George Stevens Jr., who we just had on the show. Oh, and we right. just did an extended interview where he talks about this. We previously released that interview exclusively on Patreon, yeah. but we are going to be releasing the full interview. And you can hear him talk about his relationship with Sidney Poitier yeah. uh, pretty soon. I, we haven't set a date for when we're releasing it, but soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in 1992, another movie I absolutely love, which is Sneakers. Yeah. What a great cast. What fantastic a, i mean what a bunch of actors to put together for a great film and portier slides in seamlessly with these guys it's well, so great and ladies and, and this is the thing you see he's really funny yes like that's the because and i think that's what he didn't get to do as much of he's funny and guess who's coming to dinner yeah but a lot of his roles are not that funny until he does those 70s ones with cosby and he's clearly having a ball in oh my god uh, yeah Uptown. Listen, there are other films, there are other comedies that he did with Bill, but Uptown Saturday Night is the one. That's the one. If you're going to go back and watch any of those, that's the one. And yes, great in sneakers, great comedic timing, using the smile and the smirk Mm -hmm. that had been his kind of judgment and at times his kind of I know a little bit better than you situation uh, look to give in certain situations in the 60s and 70s for the movies he was in to comedic effect in a powerful way still with it, with a film like sneakers. Yeah. Um, in 2002, he wins both the SAG lifetime achievement award and an honorary Academy award. Mm-hmm. And this is the same ceremony where you mentioned that when Denzel won best actor for yeah. training day, uh, which is by the way, he is the second African-American man to win an Oscar. So you go from 65 or 66 lilies of the field. You have to go all the way to 2002 for the next one. Yeah. And what he said is in his speech, I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your fit footsteps. And there's nothing I would rather do, sir. Yeah. And Sydney was there. And Sydney yeah. gave him a, you know. I, I'm yeah. that remember that moment is so indelible in oh, my yeah. mind. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. I didn't realize that he was a knight. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 1974. Wow. In 74. Imagine in 74. That. Imagine that, dude. He got a, a Kennedy Center honor in 95. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2009. And here's another thing I didn't know about him. He was the Bahamas ambassador to Japan from (laughs) 1997 to 2007. Wow. I mean, that's not the most important ambassadorship in the world, but 10 years, the dude's an ambassador. I don't know. Maybe it's very important to the Bahamas. I don't know what their, uh, you know, import export situation is. So Maybe it was a very important position for him to have, you know. And in the AFI 100 Years 100 Stars, he is number 22. Mm. And yeah. I think he is so important and has such stature yeah, and power. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you wonder, Steve, that, you know, this time you talk about where he took time off and didn't act for 11 years. You know, was he exploring being a director, just wanted to focus on that? Or did he feel like, you know what? I've tried to represent and I've tried to fight. I'm going to sit back for a little bit. I'm going to let other people take a shot. Let other people get the shine. Let other people kind of come to the forefront while I kind of do my own thing. I mean, somewhere in my mind, there's an Eddie Murphy, Sidney Poitier film from the eighties that we never got. That would have been incredible to see. And 
you know, to see him or a Richard Pryor film with him and in Sidney Poitier when Richard was doing all those vehicles like busted loose and whatever, like it would have been nice to see something with that, but maybe he just felt like, you know what? I've done what I can. It's exhausting. I'm going to take a break and I'm just going to do my own thing and work folks on directing. And then he had to be convinced to be a part of shoot to kill. So he's an artist. And as an artist, you feel inspired to start and you feel inspired to keep going and you feel inspired to stop and you feel inspired to get back in the game. And so Maybe in those months, maybe he just kind of hit that wall and wanted to take a little bit of a break as, as far as being in front of the camera. I literally have no idea why the mm. why he made these choices, but I kind of hope or feel that it's kind of what you said. And I and, and I think about like all the athletes who didn't quit when they were at the top. Yeah. And it's like 1967 is the top. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that he doesn't work after that. But I, I think it, I hope that is kind of what you said. Yeah. And maybe he also went, you know when I'm 15 years older, I get to play a different kind of part and I'm not going to have this pressure that's on me as the one, you know, male lead African-American movie star, you know? Um, So he is a remarkable, remarkable person. It is so sad that he has left us, but you know, he lived an incredible life and gave us some truly, truly powerful performances, including this one we're going to examine right now in the heat of the night. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hi, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host of numerous shows, and occasionally an actor here in Los Angeles, California. And today, because it is the year 2017, (laughs) we are once again going back to the year 1967. Yeah. Because it is the 50th anniversary of a bunch of great films, including the Academy Award winner for Best Picture, In the Heat of the Night. Yeah. Um, This is a fascinating film to revisit because... It's not one I've seen a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen it a few times. I've always liked it. And yeah. going back to it, I think particularly today, it's a really powerful film. Well, growing up throughout my life, my best friend was black since I was in high school. And so for us, uh, revisiting these films or to- uh, seeing these films has been kind of something we have as a touchstone between our friendship. And so last night I texted him that I was watching this again because we've watched it a number of times together right. and I've watched it separately. It's one of these films that we can quote back and forth to each other. And you, usually that those are comedies or like, right. you know, fun, great. But this film has this incredible narrative of the races coming together to solve this uh, murder, but also highlighting at a time in our country's history when people were still marching in the streets. You know, Martin Luther King was one year away from being assassinated. There was so much happening, and uh, Norman Jewison was able to slide in this really powerful social commentary amongst this uh, case. Well, because the movie industry, really throughout history, but particularly at this time, is behind the reality of America. Yes. You know, America has evolved and is going to a new place and the movie industry is still run by the old guard, the old studio chiefs who want to do things the way they've always done them. And this movie is not only an anomaly, but also really the harbinger of things to come. Yeah, and amazingly, it wins Best Picture uh, in 1967. It's so 
powerfully told, you know? Yeah, I think, and we're, we're going to get it because yeah. the Oscars are really fascinating what yeah. happens that year. So we're going to get into that too. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny. Like, I think the person we got to start with in talking about this film is mm-hmm. obviously Sidney Poitier. Yeah. I mean, like, A, an amazing actor, but also an amazing story and a guy who exists in this particular time in history. Right. Uh, born in the Bahamas, comes to the United States when he's 15 decides that he wants to be an just be somebody first mm-hmm. of all and then be an actor and what he does is he learns how to talk from w- listening to news reports to Walter Cronkite to all those people yeah. and that's how he gets that perfect only Sidney Poitier talks like that <laughs> kind of yeah. voice uh, starts off as an actor becomes a star on Broadway goes to Hollywood and his first leading role is as a as a doctor like mm-hmm. treating a racist patient. His second leading role is in Blackboard Jungle as a high school kid, yeah. just showing his range. And then he really emerges as the first African-American star. Leading man, yeah. Yeah, a real leading man. And of course, the big breakthrough is The Defiant Ones mm-hmm. with Tony Curtis, where he um, gets an Academy Award nomination. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I think like that might be a that might be a cinephile Absolutely. in the future. I'm yeah. happy to do that, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, in 1963, I think he wins, wins Best Actor for Lilies of the Field. Yeah. And this is the... Gr- I think of how to say this. Yeah. And and this is what's amazing about his career and then also the trap he ends up in. Yeah. Which is in my opinion, uh I think he's sort of he's the Jackie Robinson of mm. actors. Yeah, okay, I, for African Americans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I w- I would say that's a very valid point <clears throat> because well, almost how can I say this correctly? That's a very valid point, but I also think he's Better than Jackie Robinson. Like, there are better Negro ball players sure. than Jackie Robinson. I don't know if there was a better black actors than Sidney Poitier. Well, I don't There's know. something about his presence. I mean, part of what we you know, because I think maybe the difference is, and this is actually yeah. a really good point, is yeah. that there were the Negro Leagues where yeah. you saw all sorts of top. Yeah, Satchel Page, what Satchel have you. Page yeah, yeah. And, Josh Gibson. And, Josh Gibson, right. Yeah, and all, Owens, yeah. yeah, all these guys who are amazing baseball players. Yeah. And they all said, you know, Jackie was not, not, yeah, not the best. Not our right, best guy. Right. There's no Negro League of of uh, actors, you know. Well, we don't we don't know who else there, there was. There was black cinema, obviously sure. underground black cinema going sure. on all the time. Like uh, there were a number of actors that Harry Belafonte went through right. that, and, and Paul Robeson, yeah, Paul and... Robeson, those kinds of things. But I think from what I've seen of that cinema, I think Portier is the star period of any any. I and mean, that's just my personal opinion. Well, there's no and question; I, he's a great actor. Yeah, and in this film, you can see. His strength and his power as an act, as a, and as a man. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think Absolutely. That, those are connected when you watch actors progress through the years. What I mean by him being the Jackie Robinson yeah. is that he was forced to walk this tightrope. Yeah, that's a good And the point. kind of roles that he got put into mm-hmm. and the reasons that he was accepted by the studio heads and white mm-hmm. audiences was he was basically the world that got created for him was and this is what through all the reading I've done yeah. the term they used was the exceptional negro yeah is that is that he had to be so admirable and so perfect in every way yeah. that he was almost not human you know and mm-hmm. if you look particularly the other movie he made in 1967 which is guess who's coming to dinner mm-hmm. is the perfect example of this mm-hmm. he is perfect and only through being perfect and handsome and articulate and morally without flaws yeah. could he be accepted by the white audience and this this really puts him in this weird trap yeah because because he's able to play this part 
And and one of the things that was said about him, I mean, this is what, you know, horrible things that were said was mm. Studio Chiefs would say, you know, he's so good looking, he's almost white. <laughs> you know? That's so terrible. Horrible, horrible yeah. things. And on the one hand, he's so important to the African-American community of the time that right. there's this guy representing them. Right. And there's a portion of that community that is saying you have to create a good image of us. And so they're really right. happy that he's playing these perfect people. Yeah. But then as the 60s are coming along, the younger generation is starting to see him as a sellout, as, yeah. a, as a non-human, as non-black. Right. In fact, one of the phrases, there was an article in, I think, New York Times written about him, an essay from someone who just attacking the film industry and Sidney Poitier mm -hmm. by an African-American writer mm -hmm. who called him a Negro in whiteface. <laughs> You know, yeah, and but that's this is what happens, and these are these are the when you get into the minutia of movements, minutia of cultural movements within our country, there is that kind of that kind of narrative that gets developed from the angrier side. You know, there are people who say certain certain ethnic representations on screen when they're presented in ways that are like educated and and they speak perfectly do you know what i'm saying they 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 are somehow vilified by the, the other people in the community and you see that happening and then the writing what you just cited as an example this is true spike lee ta does it in school days the lighter black versus the darker black right. you know it happens in the latino community it happens too people tell me all the time because i'm a lighter latino i'm not really latino because right. i look white and it's so it's those things you confront as you go through life and as you represent these kinds of things but i think poitier in my opinion was above all that and i think it didn't matter and there's a scene in the in the in the film that i think is fantastic to convey that the difference between the two well this this know? is this that's why this movie is so important yeah. is that this is the movie where he gets to break out of that yeah you know and i think that's so because he's struggling again personally there's a certain point where he just like i don't want to act anymore right because he's under so much pressure from every direction yeah and the thing the phrase that kept going through my head about this is that the freedom to be perfect is not freedom right you know, right. is that if you have to be put in a box, whether it's the the perfect, you know, mm -hmm. exceptional Negro box or the that's not real. You need to be like this. Right. Well, none. All of those are being put in a box and mm -hmm. being as opposed to being whoever you are as an artist. Yeah. And it's very you tough know? to put on a human being, too. But the, the phrase is the phrase. Oh, I always come back to this phrase. To those who much is given, much is expected. So absolutely. He true. has been given a lot to represent it. Therefore, he must carry it on his shoulders. It, yeah, and this year is a fantastic representation, Steve, because it's not just uh, "Guess Who's Coming to Dinner." Also, "To Serve with Love" came out this year. Absolutely, so he had three separate films that were really powerfully huge delivered. films. Yeah, huge films, exactly yeah. that convey three different type of characters yeah. and three different type of narratives and arguments within right. those separate films that are worth discussing. Well, and, and at the yeah. same time, we're in the '60s, and and Harry Belafonte became one of his yes. best friends. And for those of you who don't know, Harry Belafonte, in addition to being a great singer mm -hmm. and a fine actor, was a huge activist at the time of the civil rights yes. movement, and he pushed Sidney Poitier and pushed him <laughs> to become more active, which probably wasn't in his nature. Right. But he realized that he had this responsibility because yeah. of the position that he's in. Yep. Okay, so let's 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 back up see how we get to this movie sure. which is it's based on a book. I honestly can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book. Okay. It's optioned by the Mersch company. It sounds like the book was okay. Yeah. And that the book sort of it was a African American detective who comes to a southern town, but it pretty much fell into the clichés. Right. You know, and that that the African American cop was from Pasadena. He had no emotions at all. He was very intelligent, oh, patient with everybody. Right. And so the uh, they hired Norman Jewison, who's a great director who I know we're going to talk about mm -hmm. more comes from canadian television does a lot of comedies 
gets a, a job, a deal in Hollywood and directs Doris Day movies yeah. and comedies, and he hated it. He just felt like, I can do something more. He had a five-picture deal, and part of the five-picture deal was if they don't give him the fifth picture by a certain date, he's free from the contract. <laughs> so he just didn't say anything. He just laid low and kind of hid, <laughs> and the date went by, and he went, woohoo, and got to go off and direct. The first one is The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, right. which is a surprise hit, and that kind of gives him the juice to go do In the Heat of the Night. Right. Um, and he brings in Sterling Siliphant as the writer. Sterling Siliphant, one of the biggest TV writers of all time, along with Rod Serling and Patty Chayefsky, mm -hmm. other people we've talked about. Seems like Sterling, that guy could write fast. Yeah. He wrote, if you go look at his IMDb <laughs> and you want to scroll through what he wrote, it's hundreds and hundreds wow. of things, and he not Knocks off the In the Heat of the Night script in, you know, a week or something. Yeah. This is what Norman Jewison does, which I love, is he calls him up. He says, you know what? I just read the script. It's the best draft of any script I've ever read in my life. It's perfect. We're not going to change a word. And Sterling Silliphant says, wow, that's amazing. And Jewison says, let's, let's get together just for lunch to celebrate. So they get together for lunch. And Silliphant says, I'm so glad you like this script. Are you sure there's not really anything you want to talk about? And, and Jewison goes, well, if you want to talk about it, reaches into his bag, pulls out a script, <laughs> paper clips and notes and everything <laughs> all over it. Sterling Silliphant works six months on this script. Wow. Which he never did in his life. It doesn't sound like it from what you were saying. No. Yeah, no. No, um, <laughs> and and one of the big things Jewison wants, and because of the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Yeah. He has a little juice. He wants to shoot on location. He says, "I can't shoot this thing, wow. you know, in L.A. We have to go shoot on location." They say, "Okay." Poitier says, "I'm not shooting in the South." Yeah, because he the last time he'd been in the South, he had death threats. He had people coming after him. And this is when you know the Freedom Riders are happening. Mm -hmm. This is when people are being lynched and killed. Oh, yeah. It's a scary, scary time. And who is the most public African American figure in the world? We got Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. We got Malcolm X. We got Muhammad Ali, and we got Sidney Poitier. Yeah, and he didn't want to be there. Yeah, no surprise. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be there either. So they find a small town in southern Illinois mm -hmm. called Sparta, Illinois. And they decide very quickly, you know, we're going to change the name of our city and our script to Sparta because Sparta's on the water tower on businesses. Right, it's right. like, oh, it's, it's easier. Now, it's now Sparta, Mississippi. <laughs> and so they go to shoot there. Right on. Um, and one more person I want to talk about, and then let's get into the movie, yeah. is can't talk about this movie without talking about Hal Ashby. Okay. Hal Ashby is the editor on this film. He is mm -hmm. a one of the great editors of all time, and right. he becomes one of the great directors of all time. Harold and Maude being there, right? And he is a fascinating Hollywood character. He's a major weed smoker, mm -hmm. smoked all the time, wore love beads and stuff. He's probably fifteen years older than the hippie generation, yeah. But that's what he was into. He dropped acid. He and he was more than an editor. He's like a, a line producer. He's yeah. going over the script with Jewison. He's talking to Jewison every day, talking about what shots he needs. Talk, and they had just this amazing collaboration that you never. You never hear about an editor being involved in a movie like this. Yeah. And Jewison said there is no In the Heat of the Night without Hal Ashby. Right. He's super important. Yeah. So, let's get in the movie. Well, first, how did you come to it? Oh! Well, we're going to break our tradition. <laughs> come on, Steve. <laughs> how did you come to the movie, Steve? I was so excited. <laughs> I just wailed right That's by That's all right. That's all right. Um, I, it's not, There's no... Probably because I don't really have a story. Okay. At one point, you know, in my sort of... Going back to movies I hadn't mm -hmm. seen mm -hmm. probably 20 years ago. Okay. I said, oh, this won the Oscar in 1968. Right. Let me go back and watch it. I watched it. I don't really remember. Probably watched it once since then, and I watched it a couple of nights ago. Wow. And that's really it. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Well, like I said earlier, I watched it uh, for the first time when I was a teenager. 
uh, with my friend Maurice, and we watched it. Who's now he's now the city controller or city manager of Charlottesville, Virginia. And it was, you know, shout out to Charlottesville, right? And everything that's going on now with the Confederate statues, he's there. Oh wow, which is so interesting because that's one. This is one of these films that we watched. As teenagers growing up, constantly referencing, and so I watched it quite a few times, and watching it again the other night, it's a damn good movie, man. And so to win best picture, sometimes you go back and see these other these pictures that won best picture, you're like, uh, I don't know, but this still holds up, and it's still powerful, all the way from Rod Steiger, who we haven't even mentioned yet, to Poitier, their relationship throughout the movie is is so interesting and fun to watch, and also unsettling, and then ultimately gratifying. You know? Yeah, it's so, it's it's we, it's the heart of the movie. Yeah, definitely the heart of the movie. And this is what's so interesting about the film is that it is dealing with issues of race yeah. and racism, and and also and but being subjective in a really good way, mm-hmm. which is that it's not just saying bad guys, good guys. Right. It's kind of going well. Yeah. Let's let's go live with these people for a while. Right. The gray of, area of humanity. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> We start with one of my favorite musicians of all time. Yeah. Ray Charles. I know, man. Ray, that song. In the heat of the night. No, I know you're probably going to play it, but I I thought (laughs) I'd give it a shot there. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to play you. (laughs) I'll play both. In the heat of the night. It might be, outside of a Bond movie, the best title track that mm-hmm. has the name of the movie in the movie that I can think of. Okay, that's fair. Like, like other than like Live and Let Die and Goldfinger. Right, right, right. You know, like, to actually, we're just going to sing the title of the movie right <laughs> at the top of the movie. You can't get better than Ray Charles. Yeah. And he's backed up by Quincy Jones. Oh. Being, doing the score of the film, and the right. score is completely different from anything we've heard up to this point in film. Mm-hmm. It's really its own thing. Yeah. Show up at a train station. And very subtly, we see this guy get off the train. We don't see it is. We see yeah. it's an African-American man. And he goes into a room, and a dog is kind of standing there. And that's our introduction introduction to Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Um, now we go and we follow this cop. Yeah. Comes into a diner. War it's Notes. very strange. Yeah. yeah. War Notes is great in War- the film. Seen him in so many movies, so many westerns. He, you know, he's fantastic in some Peckinpah stuff. He, War Notes is a good, such a good actor. And what, a, what are these guys that, like... It was a character actor who eventually became a lead every once in a while in yeah. some of these films. So it's interesting to see. And so I li- I love when he shows up in films. And I had forgotten that he was uh, the cop that leads us into the whole story. Yeah. And there's this very odd guy working behind the counter in the yeah. diner who's shooting flies. And yeah. that guy looks... Again, Again, we're like, this doesn't look like a movie I've seen before. Right. It looks really different. And that guy is the actor who is uh, the, who runs the bar in Unforgiven. That's the same actor. Really? Yes. Yeah, so we're we're going to talk about how many of these actors in this film have are still either are still working or have worked in things that wow. we remember. Yeah, yeah. That's great. You know this so much better than I do. So uh, well, I'm kind of yeah. excited. <laughs> um, the the uh, uh, and and just little details like the fact that the guy who runs the diner has hidden the pie. Yes. You know. Again, you want every moment to be filled with some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, this is shot on a real location. Yeah. Uh, and then our our cop gets back in his car, goes for a drive. Stops in front of this house. Yeah. Where's this woman drinking a Dr. Pepper? Well, we think it's a woman. We find out later it's a girl. It's a girl. A 16-year-old yeah. girl. 16-year-old girl. Which is so weird to put in this movie in nineteen in the 60s. Yeah. Like, you know, we were ogling a 16-year-old girl. And it, you are deaf. He is ogling them. Yeah. And we're kind of ogling Yes, we are. Yeah. Absolutely. The way it's shot, Jewison shoots it. It definitely is yeah. a very sexy shot. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the, we're going to show the most that we possibly can right. within the censorship of the time. Yeah. 
Um, after ogling this girl, he goes, drives a little farther, stops at an alleyway, and there's a body mm-hmm. in the alleyway, gets out of the car. And you could tell from his reaction, yeah. bodies is not a thing he sees very often. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, and now we're into our murder mystery. Yes. Rod Steiger shows up. All right, let's talk a little about Rod Steiger. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> He is one of the great actors who never got what he deserved. Yes. And he seems like a troubled guy. He won an Oscar uh, for this film. For this film. I think he won two Oscars. Yeah, he's won two Oscars. Yeah. But he won this one. I mean, from On the Waterfront to The Pawnbroker. Yeah, Pawnbrokers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic film to this. Yeah. And yet, in between those things, he has a lot of trouble getting work. Yeah. People just don't want to hire him. He's always in competition with George C. Scott, apparently. That makes sense. Um, and he is full method guy. He is intense. He is big. He's a lot of a lot. Yeah. And in this part, he this is my favorite of his, I think. Yeah. I mean, Pawnbroker is a great movie. Yes. But I love this. This character that he creates is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And he's chewing some gum, and he's looking at that body. He's trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, in and doing re- some research for this, uh, I watched the TCM uh, conversation about this film, and uh, mm. Joe Mankiewicz uh, said that Steiger initially did not want to chew gum, right? And Jewison told him, like, you have to chew the gum. It's and then Steiger eventually understood why, and he was able to convey the emotions of a scene depending on how fast he was chewing the gum, or if right. he stopped chewing the gum, or if he slowly started chewing the gum. So it was almost like an actor prop in a way, yeah. but I think he makes it work so well. Just the way he shows up, and he's just because there's he he is a body type that is large, but it's not hunched over. So right. when he stands there, you this is a this is a concrete post that you're dealing with. Oh yeah, yeah. And we see that throughout the yeah, film, absolutely. And we also see his intelligence and yeah. his like he because it's what's so interesting. His character, I think, without Sidney Poitier is great. This yeah, is not, yeah. But without Steiger, I think this movie drops down so i don't know anyone Mm -hmm. else who could play it because he's so complex Mm -hmm. and subtle in all of the things he's doing right because you want to put him in a box yes you want to go oh here's and in fact they talked about uh i forget forget his name just went out of my head oh Um, oh oh you're talking bull you're talking bull connor uh, yeah bull connor yeah 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 um so so they they wanted him to they modeled him after bull connor that makes sense Bull connor's always chomping on a cigar and that's why they had the gum and 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 but bull connor is the iconic southern sheriff racist yeah that's not who Chief Gillespie is. Right. He is much more complicated and subtle and thoughtful than that. Well, I think the name is perfect, too. Gillespie. That's not what you typically hear in a Southern sheriff's name. Just like Virgil is not your typical black person's right. name either. So there's so much about this film that's atypical, even even all the way to the character names. You know. So uh, Gillespie sends Sam off and says, go to the pool hall, go to this place, go to yeah. this place, go to the train station, see if you can find something. He does that. Gets to the train station, walks into the train station, viewed through this mesh of the screen door, yeah. a real slow shot, and we know what he's seen. Right. We know he's seen Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Sitting there, tie on, you know, nice looking nice, yep. sitting there with a suitcase, just minding his own business with his arms folded. Yep. And he still is the subject of, this guy must have done it because he's black. On your feet, boy. I mean now. This scene is so scary, yeah, and it's particularly scary today with all the things we've been talking about, yeah. Because you know, like, there's a lot of people on a lot of sides of a very complicated issue, yep. and it is a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. I would never say that it isn't. Yes, but one thing we can say is that this has been going on for a long time. Yep, and you know that that Poitier, that Virgil Tibbs knows. Yeah, this is a really, really dangerous situation. Yep, yeah, and he's 
calm and angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. But he's not even supposed to be there. He's just there visiting his mom or something yeah. like that. He's passing through the town. Yeah. Just waiting for a change just, in trains. Yeah, exactly. Go to Memphis. Well, and one of the great things that Poitier has in his arsenal as a fine actor is silence. Yes. He is one of the great silent people. Yeah. And we're with him immediately. Mm-hmm. There's this great shot sort of from the side. It's a side profile where you see his eyes as he's getting frisked. Yeah. And the combination of intelligence, anger, and patience like I just gotta, I just gotta deal with this. Yeah, this is yeah. what I'm dealing with now. Yeah, because when that gun comes out, that that he's he's inches away from getting killed. Right, and something you brought up earlier in the podcast, Steve. I wonder how much of his experience, having been in the South when he was shooting that one film that you were talking right. about, and getting the death threats and getting all this, are fed into that moment. It's a great you point. Know? It's a great point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's you know, and it's also this is his opportunity, having played all these very straight people yeah to it's not that this guy tibbs is still exceptional sure still intelligent still has a lot of self-control mm-hmm. but you could see the anger yeah bubbling throughout this film yeah so we take him in and they don't even ask him any questions mm-hmm. it's just the assumption that this guy did it brings him into gillespie and that falls apart pretty quickly what you hit him with hit home who Boom, what are you? You a northern boy? What's a northern boy like you doing all the way down here? I was waiting for the train. But now there ain't no trains this time of morning. Tuesdays only, 4.05 to Memphis. You say. <laughs> all right, you say right. It does, well, because you know, they think he did it because he has money in his... In his money. wallet. How, how could you make this much money? How could you make this much? You're a black man. How can you yeah. make this much money? I earn that money 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Colored can't earn that kind of money. Boy, hell, that's more than I make in a month. Now, where did you earn it? Philadelphia. Mississippi. Pennsylvania. Not just what you do up there, little old Pennsylvania, earn that kind of money. I'm a police officer. All this kind of stuff that happens in the room between him and Rod Steiger is fantastic. And Steiger keeps... Like, that's the thing about his characterization. He embraces his power in the moments when he can have power. Absolutely. And it's a very relaxed, like the way he's sitting back in the chair. It's not aggressive. It's not attacking. He's very chill. But he'll still go back and forth with you, but he does it from a relaxed position of power. And then you have Portier standing his ground. So there's two, these two very proud men you know, going back and forth from their own respective positions of power. And pride, that, I'm so glad you said that because yeah. pride is like, this whole movie turns on pride. Yeah. They're both proud. They both make decisions based on their pride. And they're, and really on some levels, their strength and weakness yes. is their pride. Yes. Um, and the thing that's interesting about Gillespie is that there's no question that he's steeped in a certain worldview mm-hmm. that he grew up with. But he lets go of it. Yeah. When he's, con- at the moment that he's, I'm a policeman, he knows we have the wrong guy. This right. is not the guy. Right. He calls Sam in. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because no matter what his beliefs about race when we start the movie mm-hmm. is he believes in being a good cop and finding the right bad guy. Yeah. And this is not the guy. Right. You know, and we'll see him do this throughout the film, which is that he will he will show his pride. Yeah. And then he will swallow his pride. Right. He will think he's got the right guy on a number of occasions. Yeah. And have to swallow his pride that he doesn't. Yeah. It's not. It's not. He doesn't like always willingly do it. But he's still open to do it when right. the circumstances and the the reasoning lines up for him, yeah. and he and he accepts his limitations, yep. which he has some. Yeah. Because what we find out is not only is he a detective and he's from Philadelphia, and that he, but he is the best homicide detective that this chief has. Because yeah. Gillespie calls uh, Poitiers chief. May I suggest that you call my chief rather than send a wire or anything? I mean, it would be quicker 
And I'll pay for the call. Can you hear him? Do you hear him say he paid for the call? How much do they pay you to do their police work? $162.39 per week. $162.39 a week. Well, boy. You take him outside, Wood, but treat him easy because a man that makes $162.39 a week, man, we do not want to ruffle him. Oh, you're going to pay for call. <laughs> oh, for call. excuse us, Mr. $162. I love that. It's a great back and forth, though. Yeah. That's so, so good between both of them. And, and, and what does Poitier's police chief say? He says, why don't you stay there and yeah, help them out? man. Here's a question I have for you. Sure. Is his police chief a black man? It's a good question. I don't know. Because why does he say stay and solve, help them solve this thing? Oh, well, it may just be through the conversation with Rod Steiger that Steiger admits to him that he doesn't, doesn't know much about homicides. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And when he finds out he's a homicide detective, he, he says the best is whatever. And so I'm sure Steiger doesn't necessarily want him to stay, but... I'm sure there's a back and forth that makes him feel like oh, maybe he might, it might not be a bad idea to have him stay because Steiger has no concept of how to handle right. homicides. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and there's also a moment where when, when the call's going on in yeah. Gillespie's office and Poitier's in the waiting room, and you could just see how the world has changed subtly because they get the photographs mm-hmm. of the body, and Poitier kind of goes, hey, can I see those? Yeah. Can I see the man I'm supposed to have killed? <laughs> and Sam goes, line. yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see just the, the strange power that this character of Virgil mm-hmm. Tibbs has, it grows slowly over time. Yeah, and the thing that I love about this movie, Steve, is he's a reluctant participant. He at is the not, beginning, at yeah, least. and that's what I mean. He is not a guy who goes, hey, there's a murder here, let me solve it. He's a guy that goes, I'm just trying to get home. Right. I just want to get home, and damn it, I've got to stay now and solve this murder. Well, and this police department has treated me horribly. Yeah, horribly, right. Horribly, so right. fuck you, I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. So he wants to get out, and honestly... Gillespie doesn't want to, his, to have his help. Yeah, not necessarily, no. Yeah. And then there's this moment where he goes, no, I need this guy's help. Well, now, you are, the, you are the number one homicide expert. That's right. Boy, I bet you get to look at a lot of dead bodies, don't you? Lots. Well? Well, what? Well, I'm, no, I just thought maybe, uh, maybe you wouldn't mind taking a look at this one. No, thanks. Well, why not, expert? Because I've got a train to catch. Oh, wait a minute. That train don't leave till 12 o'clock noon. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? Because I'm not an expert. And yeah. he asked him to stay. And this is sort of that first moment of, this is what my pride is telling me to do, right. but then this is what the right thing to do is. I'm going to swallow my pride. Yep. And he gets him to stay. So we go off to examine the body. Yeah. <laughs> These guys do not know much about bodies. <laughs> because they don't do homicides yeah, in we this don't town. do homicides. No, no. Just kind of talking about it. Yeah. And Poitier's standing there, and there's kind of this awkward, like, what's this guy doing here? Yeah. And then he starts examining the body, and we see his competence and intelligence right away. He's, incre- he's already the most intelligent person in the room. Oh, yeah. Just as soon as he starts analyzing the body. And you can see the unsettled racism yeah, and it's not it's it's not as overt, but it's certainly there between the interactions of the doctor and the uh, I guess the guys. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I is. think it's coroner and an Cor- undertaker. Undertaker, that's it. Yeah, so yeah. you see that, and when Poitier starts to hand his jacket to one, neither one of them wants to take it. Yeah, you know, and that's the moment where you re- you see even even though he's shown how intelligent he is, it still unsettles people. Well, I think I think what it is is like. I, I certainly have no definition I can give of what how to 
say what racism is. Right. But there are different levels of it and oh, different sure. ways that it manifests itself. And one of the ways that it manifests itself is that we're just used to how things happen in the world that we grew up with. Yeah. And in the world that we grew up with, the an, a black man in this room would never behave this way. Yeah. And I would never take the, the jacket of this man. Yeah. And so his behavior doesn't fit how stuff is supposed to work. Right. It's not that they look at him with cartoon racism and hatred. Right. It's that they don't understand what is happening. Right. Because it doesn't make sense because the world doesn't work that way. And by his token, he doesn't understand necessarily. He knows racism, but he doesn't understand. Like, it doesn't stop his movements. Right. right, his natural movements to hand his jacket to the corner is probably something he's done a million times in Philadelphia, and it doesn't stop him from doing it again down here because that's force of habit. Well, and I also think that there's some like I'm going to make you take my coat. Oh, you think he's trying to? I don't know. I mean, there's some point. You could certainly make that case. I mean, there's some. I mean, I think it's a balance. Mm -hmm. I think he is a extremely well respected person where he comes from, and people do take his coat. Right. You know, but I also think he knows. I mean, he can feel what's happening. (laughs) You know. And what we discover is that this guy who was the coroner, he doesn't really know how long this body has been right. dead. And that Sydney kind of challenges him on it. Yeah, on the rigor mortis and all on that. On rigor yeah. mortis, yeah. And so we realize that, that this person was killed probably earlier than expected. Mm-hmm. And right as, and the last, and we see throughout this whole scene is Gillespie watching Tibbs. Yeah. And he knows, I don't know what this guy knows. Yep. And his attitude is you give him anything he wants. Mm-hmm. It's right at that sort of coat handing moment. It's like, no, you are his assistant. Right. You assist him, and I got to go chase some runaway. Yeah, and what I love about the film is the scene ends with uh, Portier saying, where can I wash my hands? Yeah. And both those guys look at each other like all uncomfortable because there's only one basin. Right. There isn't a colored basin in a, in a, yep. in a white person. So they probably almost they probably never had a black man who was yep. alive in that yeah. room. And so the fact that so they, you know, they have to in, almost begrudgingly let him uh, wash his hands where they it's well, so fantastic. Well, and again, I asked this question is yeah. like, does Poitier ask that because he knows that's going to make them uncomfortable? No, I think he does need to wash his hands because he's been in it's numerous areas and he has not washed his hands yet and could can corrupt the uh, the body, you know, with with evidence. So. Yeah. Uh, so we go off to chase some guy. Yep. Uh, it's good chasing. Yes. Uh, this is actually, this is right when we've invented the zoom lens. Mm-hmm. So this is some of the first uses of zoom lenses in film. I was really excited about it. It became a huge thing through their mid-70s. Yeah. Then not a huge thing and kind of back now. Yeah. Uh, great. But it's a fun It's a fun chase with some funky Quincy Jones music. These are the moments that I, that feel very TV-like, TV movie-like to yeah, me, or TV show-like to me. Yeah. So to me, it still works within the frame of the movie because there's so much about the movie that is a feature film type vibe. But this, these are there are certain moments in this particular film that feel very... TV episode like and it's okay uh, but it does kind of uh, unsettle me at times it's budget I mean yeah, it's a, it's a low sure. budget it's, this sure. is a low budget movie like sure. Sydney takes a huge pay cut everyone's working cheap yeah. most of the actors are working for a hundred bucks a day wow yeah it's a cheap movie Whew. and even stuff like in the chasing with the train yeah well they couldn't control a train right so they, they couldn't schedule they just had to wait for trains coming let's get our shot going right and did exactly what you shouldn't where people get killed which is right. just let's just run in front of this train right what could happen <laughs> and most of the time nothing happens but as we know sometimes people get killed yeah so now we're gonna meet lee grant yeah uh who is a another came out with rod steiger out of the actor studio Mm -hmm. big method person blacklisted and oh and it worked very very little wow yeah i didn't know that yeah and so and well this is that era when now 
at, directors are pulling people who had been on the yeah. blacklist, saying, "Let's get you working again." Yeah, and so this is a big role for her. Yeah, uh, she, you know, she's a fine actress, and she is the widow of Colbert or whatever his name is. Yes, Colbert. Um, and this is a weird scene with her and Sydney. Yeah, but it's and this is what I love about the film. There are moments where it becomes a play. This scene is a play scene. Mm. You know, there is he tries to touch her and she does the movement like don't right. and he tries and so there is this dance that they're doing throughout this whole thing because she's she obviously is a little more progressive than than most of the people in the town. Well, we don't know that, but well, that is the case, right? Her, but I think her reactions, the fact that she doesn't usher a black man out of the room, right. the fact that she lets him twice try to touch her and then eventually guide her back, tells me this is a progressive woman. Yeah. This is not someone I agree. who sees totally agree. Yeah, this is not someone who sees like a black person immediately thinks she's above him. Yeah. and uh, so it leads me to believe that Colbert is not necessarily from this town. Right. He probably came into this town, built a business in this town, and she was part of that situation. And who knows how much of the racism that she's had to watch from the sidelines. Do you know what I'm saying? And so when this is happening between them, it's it feels very much like a play. You would see this on a stage. Yeah. Know? Well, and, and there's this weird dance. And the fact yeah. that Poitier is the guy who has to tell her her husband's dead, yeah. it's rough. Yeah. But we see he knows that this is the right thing to do yep. and he has to do the right thing. And you can see in the way he handles her that this is not his first rodeo. No. That he's being compassionate and patient mm -hmm. and sort of like, no, no, you need to sit down and this is what, and, and kind of guides her through this mm -hmm. first moment of accepting the death of her husband. Yeah. It's a really odd, I don't know that I love the scene. Oh. Uh, but it's a really kind of fascinating scene. Well, let me ask you a question back. Do yeah. you think he is doing all this and telling her he's dead? Like he doesn't sugarcoat that her no. husband's dead. Do you think he's doing this to find out if she had anything to do with it? Oh. He's a detective. It never occurred to me. That's the first thing I thought. Oh, no. I, I think that's very possible. Yeah. I think yeah, he yeah. wants to be around her. He wants to see her reaction. He's an analytical guy. He wants to see how she reacts to her husband's death. That is a really good point. Yeah. I, actually, I think you're totally right. Yeah. And it's something else that occurred to me is that if you, and this shows the inexperience of Gillespie and his people, is yeah. that if you look at all statistics about murder, most of the time people are murdered by people they know yep. they're not murdered by strangers right. and so the fact that you just because you find a random black guy at a train station you just assume well that must be who killed him right. is really a terrible police assumption <laughs> and so that's so to your point yeah. you know him going well this is the wife mm -hmm. you know this is the number of the first place we should be looking to find yeah, out exactly. I, I, yeah I think that's a really good point but it, they don't have to worry about it because Gillespie's already found the, the guy who did it oh, so he thinks they yeah. just caught him yeah. Well, he has a whole bunch of money in his pocket. That's right. Where could he have gotten that money? Right. And he says he got that money because he found the body, found the money in the wallet and took right. it. And for those of you who, uh, well, here's another moment. This actor who plays this guy is the guy who plays Uncle Virgil in Walking Dead. The old oh. man with the beard who gets his leg cut off throughout the series and eventually passes away with the governor. That is the same actor. And I was, as soon as I, and I didn't even know, it was like, I didn't even know this, but watching it this time, the speech pattern, because I'm a voiceover guy, I pick up speech right. patterns. And I was like, that's gotta be Gimple. And I go and looked it up and it was him. And wow. it's him from, from The Walking Dead. So it's, it, it's amazing how many actors in this. Yeah, 45 uh, years working. later, he yeah. gets this gig. Still working, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. Um, uh, and in Virgil's hand, he has this box that has yeah. the evidence. By which he knows this guy didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And the first, I love the moment of him examining the guy's forearms. He's yeah. Like, oh, you're yeah. left handed. Uh, I believe Harvey is a Southpaw. Now, ain't he, Shagback? What if he is? What's that make him? Innocent. 
That's <laughs> right. Which I always, the, the sort of, you can't possibly have hit someone from that angle with that hand. I'm kind of like, well, I can hit you this way or this way. Right. But it's okay. But that's what detectives are trained to do. Absolutely. To see what force, you know? Absolutely. And it's great in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you see that as this is happening, that Lee Grant's character, the wife, she's kind of on his side. Yeah. And also, she's driven mad by this interaction between uh, Gillespie and uh, Poitier's character, yeah. or Tibbs, back and forth. What kind of people are you? What kind of a place is this? My husband is dead. Somebody in this town killed him. I want you to find out who. Because you're discussing the death of my husband so casually right in front yeah. of me, and I just found out. Yeah, and it is it is brutal. It is. It is brutal. And within this, we get one of the great film moments of all time. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. I think I heard that line long, long before I saw the movie. Ah, okay. You know, because yeah. it was in those clip things yeah. that you would see the somewhere. montages, yeah. Yeah, and so I heard it, and I didn't understand... Well, what's the big deal about what this guy's name is? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it took it took some maturing on my part before I went, what what is happening here? What yeah. is this a statement of? It's a statement of how I should be respected and treated as a human and based on my worth and accomplishments and intelligence mm-hmm. and character. That is how I should be valued. I am Mr. Tibbs. Right. That's great. Yeah. And this is a moment where audiences particularly african-american audience cheered yeah i mean this is one of the great moments in history Mm -hmm. and it goes to this idea of something we talked about many times on the cinephiles Mm -hmm. is representation yeah why is it important to see somebody like me on screen right presented in a way that is uh intelligent respected demands respect commands respect commands respect. really commands respect yeah and that because of his intelligence because of his accomplishment the color of my skin should not matter you should treat me the same way you would a white detective who had come into this town to investigate to to yep. and been asked to investigate the situation. Well, and this is the thing that Sidney Poitier has been struggling with his whole career yeah. is why do I have to be this symbol? Why can't I be me as an actor? Yeah. And I think all of that anger and frustration and all of that comes out in this moment yeah. in the film. That's a great point. And that's part of why it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And this is even though he's still playing an exceptional person, this is still breaking out of that box yeah. that he's been in right unfortunately he's now going to get put in a box yeah, that's right um he's, he's you know withholding evidence we're gonna put you in jail that's right uh he's great in this scene this yeah. is one of my favorite scenes of party mm-hmm. he's so loose well like you said he's an intelligent he's the best at what he does we we, we get told that by the mo- by the at the beginning of the movie and then throughout the scenes he adapts yeah and changes his personality as a good detective would to get the information he needs from the situation. The yeah. fact that he can go from hanging and being like very, very strong with these other detect with these other policemen and the interactions with Lee Grant to being a more chill, like folksy kind of hanging out with his bud type thing in the prison with in the cell rather with yeah. this other uh criminal. The back and forth is just so great, and it ends up paying dividends later because that's what he's doing. He knows the guy's innocent, so he can let his guard down and create a relationship with this guy just in case he needs him. Ever been in trouble with the police before? Come on. I can ask at the desk, you know. And he's doing that great, you know, 
I am acting like I care about you yeah. and like we're buddies. And right. I think he does care about him on some level. Right. But he's also, this is the technique I need to get the information. Yep. And really is trying to help him. Yeah. Because he knows this guy didn't do it. And yeah. now he pulls out the alibi. He's, you know, gets the pool dust out of his fingertips and right. all those things and realizes like, okay, this isn't the guy. Yeah. And he has to get his trust. And by by proving that he's innocent, telling him that he's innocent, yep. knowing why he's innocent, he gets the guy's trust. And then the guy tells him all that information yeah. that he needs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gillespie lets him out of the jail cell. Yeah. Gets him to sign something and says, all right, go on your way. And, you know, we, we've got our guy. I don't believe you. Right. And Poitier drops a little bomb on him that the body wasn't killed in that alley. Right. He was moved. He was moved. Heads off to the train station. Uh, and Gillespie and Lee Grant go to talk to the mayor, mm-hmm. who's another actor yeah. who's seen in tons and tons yeah, of stuff. Yeah, a million things. Yeah. yeah, a million things. And the mayor's sort of feeling about this is, no, no, you got to use this guy. Yeah. Because if he helps you find out stuff that's great right and if he doesn't essentially we can blame everything on him right not a nice mayor no but and lee grant makes it clear that she will she wants portier to be on the case right she says i will take my husband's business right which runs the town yep out of the town or will potentially run the town yeah potentially yeah. run the town out, yeah. out, out of the town you know? yep yeah so they're like okay let's use this guy yeah we go back to the train station and this scene is great any reason why you have to leave today? Lots of reasons. Uh, what would you say if I uh, I asked you to stay for a while? No. The way that Gillespie asked Tibbs to stay, the way that <laughs> Tibbs stay, it's really good. It's Because he turns it on him. He turns. This is one of those moments where Gillespie gets to get the upper hand yeah. in interaction with Tibbs and turns this idea on him. How You know you want to help. You know you want to help. Don't tell me that. Yeah. You know you want to stay. Now, you listen to me. Just once in my life, I'm going to hold my temper. I'm telling you that you're going to stay here. You're going to stay here if I have to go inside and call your chief of police and have him remind you of what he told you to do. But I don't think I have to do that, you see. No, because you're so damn smart. You're smarter than any white man. You're just going to stay here and show us all. You got such a big head that you could never live with yourself unless you could put us all to shame. You want to know something, Virgil? don't think that you could let an opportunity like that pass by because you want to solve this thing. you want to solve this i thing. can tell yeah. because as much as gillespie doesn't have the skills that mm-hmm. that tibbs has yeah he's still a smart guy and mm-hmm. a good cop mm-hmm. he understands people and he knows how to do this stuff and it's sort of he doesn't like asking this guy for help right but once he decides to do it he knows how to do it and then Poitier is sort of coy, yeah. even the way he walks over, like, oh, okay, you kind of got me. <laughs> right. It's really fun, and mm-hmm. it's not, this is, I would not say this is a buddy cop movie. No, no. But there, there's elements of sort of, you sure. know, we hate each other at the beginning, and mm-hmm. we know we have to work together, right. that sort of come out, and this scene is a really fun one of it. I mean, this brings up sort of a question that I keep asking throughout the movie, and I don't know that there's an answer, but is Chief Gillespie a racist? I think what you said earlier makes sense that he grew up in this world where it was just accepted that black people in his town or in his world are lesser than white people, right? It's just kind of what he's grown up with. That's why he has a hard time initially with uh, Tibbs' approach to the world, Tibbs' strength, Tibbs' demeanor. He has such a hard time with it because he's not used to dealing with a black person or an African-American person like this in his world, in, let alone in his town. And so this is something that I think he, I don't know if he's necessarily overtly racist, but he certainly 
thinks that black people are lesser than white people because that's what he's been taught. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this, like, what's the difference between being prejudiced and being racist? Right. And what is institutional bias versus racism and yeah, all these things point. are very, very, they're co complicated to figure out. Yeah. And this, to me, is a good movie to examine it because I completely agree with you is that there's no question that his in his worldview, black people are lesser than white people yeah. because that's what he's always seen. Right. But there's also no question that he is open to learning. Yes. And for most people in the world, Learning like that is very, very difficult and mm -hmm. comes very, very slowly. Yeah, well, and the irony is uh, the police are one of the people who initially are against Tibbs and then very quickly come around yeah. to his side. And I wonder how much of that was done like by the studio saying, I don't want the police to be overtly racist from the beginning. Like we, we, got, we don't want police to boycott this film, blah, blah, blah. I wonder how much of that is factored in because it's easier to make the yokels of the town overtly racist and dangerous and especially the fat cat because there aren't that many fat cat people coming to see movies right. it's if you've got cops you don't want to necessarily portray them all the time as full-on racist you know they all seem to come around either from a lack of intelligence or an appreciation of virgil tibbs well and i think jewison and siliphant and hal ashby and poitier yeah. and steiger all of them together, none of them wanted to do a cartoon. Right. You know, and that it's very easy to go, well, what is the nature of this character? This character is a racist. Right. And you put that character in a box, and that's not a really interesting character. No. Sam is more interesting. Yep. Is that he definitely, I mean, he sees a black man he yep. doesn't know and goes, that must be the killer. Right. So there's no question that he is prejudiced. But right. his then reactions to being wrong about this guy and how he treats him evolves over time. Yeah. You know, and because he's actually an interesting person. Yeah. Um, so uh, we draw him off with a, a black family so yeah. he's gonna stay he says oh i'll find a motel and like no you're gonna stay with us well, and this scene is really important i really think important watching you see and this is what you brought up earlier this idea that had been going around this you, you're not that portier was not really black or not black enough right. or didn't speak to the maybe the lower classes of the lower middle classes of the black black uh experience and you see this here in this scene because the guy says why are you helping white people? Why are you helping yeah. these people? Why are you helping the police? You know, and he get this comes up later as well. And he's like, well, it, you know, it's a thing. And he's, do you have some place to stay? I get a hotel. And the guy laughs at him because yeah. in Poitier's mind there, he can absolutely get a hotel room, right. but the black guy understands there's no way Poitier is going to get a black, uh, a hotel room in this town because they are so overtly racist or so overtly, uh, uh, believe this idea that black people do not, integrate with white people in the same establishment well and and that if you you know it, it, that if you were an african-american who had to travel throughout yep. the south and yes. really throughout all of the united states yep. um in the you know up till up till the end of segregation yeah there were secret books and and messages mm -hmm. and notes of like here's a bathroom you can use right here's somewhere you can get a hot meal right here's where you can find a bed because it could be a thousand miles between those places yeah you know and you know it's like people you know a lot of people in this world just don't can't understand that like you can't pee yeah you know you're a woman driving and it's like there's no bathroom for you right i mean this is i mean that's some this rough is stuff why, this is why there's a middle ground steve it isn't about being this bullshit social justice warrior fucking thing that they have out there i'm sorry to cuss so much but it's just to me it, it bothers me because there is a middle ground there's nothing wrong with exploring the history of this country and understanding how difficult it was for the african-american community to exist in this country throughout most not just the south it was also in areas of the north Absolutely. also in areas of the midwest very difficult to exist and there's nothing wrong with accepting it it doesn't mean that you have to take it on and 
and be, you know, to blame for it. That's not what this whole thing is about. It's about understanding and having perspective, being intelligent enough to get it, and then also being okay with speaking about it, talking about it, and making sure we don't repeat ourselves ever again in the history of our country. And unfortunately, it's been twisted to what I see happening now is, is this whole of thing, oh, they're whining, or they're crying about it, or they won't let it go. Trust me, if, if your ethnic heritage was put through, if white people were put through what black people put through, they would also develop a, a, a thicker skin, a harder edge, an anger towards these situations that come out in certain moments and have movements and what have you. So to me, it's important to understand. It isn't blaming anybody. It is saying, this is what happened. Let's accept what happened. Let's do better. And let's be better as a country as we move forward. It isn't saying you're to blame forever. You well, and, and and I I completely agree. And what I would what I would add is that is that if that you must not put blinders on. Yes, you got to look at it. If you want to say like, okay, I don't agree, say it after you've examined mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. If you haven't examined it yet, you haven't really earned the right to say I don't agree. And like for instance, in talking about this, yeah, a, a great book book to take a look at is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which mm -hmm. is a book about the about the African-American migration from the South to the North and out yeah. to California. Right. And it goes into so much detail about how that experience was, how was finding work, how did the culture work, right. how did you find a bed to sleep in, how did you be, you know, how did these communities hold together? Yeah. And if you wanted to listen to that book, you could do it on Audible, our good yeah, friends at right. Audible. We haven't talked about them in a while. Yeah. Uh, they're over, I think, 150,000 Audible books. I'm a huge Audible subscriber. The Warmth of Other Suns is a great book. You could also listen to Pictures at a Revolution, which is about this year, 1967. We talked about it with The Graduate. Yeah. It has all the stories behind the making of In the Heat of the Night. And if you visited Audible, you could help us out by going to audible.com slash the cinephiles. Yeah. You get a free audio book, a 30-day trial membership, and it helps the show too. So that's audible.com slash the cinephiles. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's yeah. move on. Thank you. Um, so, so he goes, he sees Lee Grant again, mm -hmm. gets a little bit of information, finds out when uh, her husband left, yeah. goes to examine the car, a little bit of blood in the car. Yes. He finds some other stuff that's some sort of grassy mm -hmm. vegetable material. Mm -hmm. And then he goes with Gillespie to the cotton field. Yeah, man. So, so this is really important to Jewison. He a said, fantastic scene. We need to go to the set. Can I get three days? Three days, he finally convinces Poitier to shoot three days in the South. Wow. So this is really shot down in, I think, Mississippi <sighs> in a cotton field. And while he and Steiger in the hotel, some guy shows up at the hotel drunk with a shotgun. Oh. Yeah. Now, maybe he was after Poitier and maybe he was not. Right. We, we don't really know. Right. But pretty scary. Yeah. And this scene in the car with Gillespie in the cotton field. Yeah. It's fraught with a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Especially when you think if these are actual actors, extras from Mississippi picking cotton from that one shot that Jewison has. Those are neither actors nor extras. Oh. Those are people picking cotton. Wow. Those are just the people. And when they, <sighs> they talked to the guy who was the boss of yeah. this cotton field, and they said, because they said, hey, can you have your guys go out and pick cotton now? And Because and yeah. they were talking to him. They paid the... They didn't. I don't know if they even paid those people. I think they paid the guy who ran the cotton field. Oh. And the guy who ran the cotton field you know, said, all right, get those N-words working again. Mm. Right in front of Sydney Potty. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, man. And, and Gillespie's line of none of that for you, huh? None of that for you, huh, Virgil? Yeah. That's... 
Those are those. That's why I don't think he's a hundred percent good or a hundred percent bad. Mm-hmm. Gillespie has these. No, he's Gillespie. He's Gillespie, right? He has these moments that you're like, why would you pick, why would you push the button? Why are you trying to pick at him? Why are you trying to poke at him? But then Portier also comes back and pokes Gillespie in certain moments as well. Absolutely. So they both are testing each other as men are wont to do. Well, right? and I think they also. I think there's some circumstance where these guys would be friends. Possibly. You know, if they didn't have the backgrounds that they had, mm-hmm. if they were just two cops, mm-hmm. I think they would be friends. Right. And they've come close to it a couple of times. Right. But there's just too much to overcome. Yes. You know, for them to really be friends. They yeah. respect each other. Mm-hmm. So we head off to meet uh, Mr. Endicott, who runs most of this town. <laughs> First thing we see is the lawn jockey yeah. in front of his house. And. Uh, Gillespie puts his hand on the head of the lawn jockey, yeah. which I always thought was an interesting choice to put in the film. Oh, that's a good point. That's yeah, a good point. what does that mean? And I remember at my age, yeah. iconography like this, I really saw it yep. growing up in the 70s. Oh, yeah. I remember there was a restaurant called Sambo's. And this was, and that was their symbol, was this kind of a character. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, that stuff isn't there anymore, but I'm not that old. And it's not that far away. No. Right. No. And we go up, we meet this servant who says, oh, he's in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And now again, we get one of the key scenes in the whole film. Yeah. Here's what's interesting to me about the scene. We go in to interview Mr. Endicott. Yeah. And Endicott says, can I get you something to drink? Some And, and Gillespie goes, we're fine. And Poitier goes, Here we are. Oh, I'll have something cold, something soft, anything. Henry, bring in a pitcher of lemonade. I have one too. Yes, sir. His whole behavior in this scene is completely different from anything we've seen before. Of course. What do you think he's doing? He's playing Endicott. He's absolutely playing Endicott so that he can get the information he needs from him the whole time. He's talking about the flowers. He talks about the lilies and all this kind of stuff. This is why he's an incredibly intelligent, educated man, and he knows how to play certain scenes, certain moments. And I think in this moment, he knows exactly how to play Endicott. He he kisses his ass about the flowers, which Endicott, you can tell, cares more about the flowers than any of his people. Naturally. And then, but they as, are lovely orchids. They are lovely. Oh, right. All of that. And then eventually he picks the one uh, brand of orchid, the one type of orchid that is going to lead to the, to finding out why this piece of, of, uh, of uh, what do you call it? Whatever it is, this piece of vegetation that he found in the uh, car, yeah. the car why and he leads him to that moment but before he leads him to that moment he betrays himself uh endicott does by saying why isn't that remarkable that of all the orchids in this place you should prefer the epiphytics i wonder if you know why maybe it would be helpful if you'd tell me because like the negro they need care and feeding and cultivating and that takes time that's something you can't make some people understand. That's something Mr. Cobert didn't realize. Oh, just it's just so, so casual for him to say it, you know. And, and Portier, I think, knows to a degree he's going to say something like that. Oh, yeah. And then Portier comes back at him, man. Well, and the thing I think he's doing, too, is he wants to get, not only is he playing to him mm-hmm. and understanding the orchids and kind of, mm-hmm. but he's also playing so casual Mm -hmm. and relaxed because he knows that is the thing that will most gall this guy yes and then we get to this moment where endicott starts to realize no they're questioning him Mm -hmm. and what does he do slaps him right in the face and then sydney slaps him right back and this is the slap heard around the world yeah this is a huge again a moment that people cheered in the theater yeah and the and the studio was afraid of it 
Of course they were. Because nothing like this. I mean, we can't understand the level. It seems so obvious to us now. Right. Dude slaps me in the face. I'm going to slap him right back. Right. Makes perfect sense. Of course. But at that time. You didn't do that as a black man. In no. the South. Yeah. To a rich white man. Yeah. You just didn't do that. And and the, the, the he turns to Gillespie. You saw it. And Gillespie says, I saw it. <laughs> yeah. He said, what are you, you going to do about it? And, 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 and oh. what's funny is, is that, so they only did the slap a couple of times. Yeah. Steiger could not get this line right. I don't know. <laughs> and because he could, because he knew this was an important moment. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what to put on it. Right. And he kept coming to Jewison, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And Jewison was finally like, yeah, you don't know. Right. And Steiger went, oh. <laughs> and then he just said it straight. Like, yeah. I literally don't know yeah. what to do about this. Good, let's be. Yeah, you saw it. I saw it. But what are you gonna do about it? I don't know. Because his his growing respect for Tibbs to this point allows him to not necessarily react like the old like uh, the mayor says later yeah. you know we had a, we had our, our, our last, last chief police, of police yeah. would have shot him Virgil dead before right after the slap yeah but i think what's fascinating about this scene is not just is the slap obviously the slap is the number one thing back and forth yep you know but his reaction after portier leaves endicott's reaction endicott's reaction yeah. after portier leaves he breaks down yeah he cries yeah what is that yeah, I was wondering. So to me, there's sort of two possibilities. I was mm-hmm. thinking about this a lot. Mm-hmm. One possibility is that it is the man who's grown up in the racist culture mm-hmm. who is mourning the passing of his world. Yes. And the other possibility is that this is a spoiled brat who never got his shit come back to him before. Maybe. Maybe it, both are maybe true. Maybe it's both. Yeah. But there is a definite, like, this is, he's broken. Yeah. He, this is a broken thing. And if you catch his butler, his butler, like, just subtly shakes his head at so him So what does that out. shake the head mood? I think mean. the sh- that could be two things. It could yeah. be one, how would you, how could you let a educated black man do that, or how could you let a black man do that to you? Or, I don't know why you push the better part of my species, or the better representation yeah. of my race, why you thought you could treat him like you treat us. And we can't know. I yeah, think it's we can't definitely, know. it's one of those two, yeah. you know, and we can't know what it is. And by the way, that actor, whose name I don't remember, yeah. but he'd, he'd been around forever. Mm-hmm. And he had played servants and oh, all wow. sorts of, and so this this moment for him was a bit that he could have lived to the point where he gets to see Sidney Poitier slap that man back. Yeah. You know? We go out to the car and 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 uh, Gillespie's like, "You gotta go." <laughs> Such a great, but see, and this is where sometimes Portier's acting to me gets a bit like only he can get away with it. Just like Shatner can only Shatner can get away with the <laughs> with the the pause in the middle of sentences. Portier's the only one can get away with. I need two days, man. You know those kinds of things, and you I, see it in Blackboard Jungle. You see it in Defiant Ones. Oh, he has guess this who's coming to dinner? Yeah, guess who's coming? Yeah, yeah, he has this style where he is. Exaggerated in the moment, but you believe it and you accept it. All right, give me another day. Two days, I'm close. I can pull that fat cat down. I can bring him right off this hill. Okay, the Shatner Poitier. <laughs> Uh, uh, comparison never has occurred to me, but you are totally right. It's they both do that. Yes. I have to do this. Yeah, you know, exactly. like that weird, like I'm super intense and controlling every syllable yeah. thing. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. 
Yeah, they totally do that. I love when he does. I love when, and whenever he says "man," it's one of my favorite things in any <laughs> movie that he's ever in because there's just a way he says it that is so like, "Oh, I'm in with you. I'm in with you, man." So well, it's, it's so this great. weird sort of like because he's mostly very patrician. Yes, and so then when he pulls out the slang in anger, it's mm. always really interesting. Well, he's probably riding the high of actually, like he didn't anticipate slapping a guy like that. He's probably riding the high of it. You know, he was probably shocked that he got slapped himself. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then there's this moment where where now Tibbs really reveals like I need to get this guy. Yeah. I have to get this guy. I can't understand what Steiger says next. And it, there's one of two possibilities. Okay. He goes either he says you're just like the rest of M. Yeah. You're just like the rest of them. Or he says you're just like the rest of us. Do you mm. know which it is? Uh. I think he says you're just like the rest of them yeah. in terms of wanting to get the white man. Yeah, the black man wanting to get the white man. Right. I think that's what it is, too. Right. And my my, my uh, the DVD I had did not have subtitles. Oh, okay. And I really was like, <laughs> well, I want to know exactly because it makes a big difference. Well, because, yeah, because Poirier is, this is what I mean, like where sometimes Gillespie is calling out Poirier and sometimes, well, Virgil rather, Gillespie's calling out Virgil and sometimes Virgil's calling out uh, Gillespie. Right. And right. I think in this moment, Gillespie is calling out Virgil because yeah. Virgil is letting his emotions of this racism cloud his judgment. And which he admits later on in the movie that it was because Gillespie called him out of it in that moment. Because he Absolutely. thought it was the white, he thought it was the rich white dude who killed, uh, and, right. you know, killed that guy for, for, for whatever his reasons may be because they're en business enemies in the town. Right. But it actually wasn't. We find out that it wasn't that right. at all. Yeah, you know? so spoiler alert, this is not going to be the bad guy. No. But I don't think we understand that this is not the bad guy right. for a long for time. For a long time. Because we have that slap and that's it. This is obviously the bad guy. Yeah. And he is the cliche bad guy. Right. And this movie is not going to play in the cliche. Right. And here's an interesting thing I think about the film, which is that in most mysteries, the story is the mystery. In this movie, the the mystery on some levels is secondary to the story. Right. Like the story is Tibbs and Gillespie and this man in this town. Like we do want to solve the mystery, but it's not like... You know, most detective stories where it's like, that's all we're about. We're actually about some other stuff. And we're going to see it in a minute because Tibbs gets in his car and starts driving. And now here come the uh, mm -hmm. the local yokels with yep. their Confederate flag license plate. They drive him off the road. Right. He gets into some factory. Mm -hmm. He is cornered against the wall. Yeah. He's got a metal pole in his hand. One guy's got a chain. It's like, this is some shit. Yeah. Shit's going down. No dude has a shovel. What I like yeah. is What I like is this idea that he is still in his suit. And yep. he's fighting them off. These like you know these people who aren't that well dressed, clearly not that educated, and he is fighting them off with a steel pole. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And it's it's a it's a unsettling scene. Oh, it's scary. And you, in my mind, I was like, oh, when I watched it the first time, I was like, are they just going to beat him up? Yeah. You know, and leave him for dead, or what's going to happen here? And this, I'm sure, and let's be honest here, this happened. Hundreds, of course. Maybe, if not thousands, of times in the South during this time. Of course, during all these decades of this time, you know. Well, the, you know, I don't remember what the. It's it, there are literally thousands of documented lynchings. Yeah, and one assumes that if there are thousands of documented lynchings, that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and here is a guy who is to use a phrase that I hate, but they would consider uppity. Yeah, you know, and has shown up. And because here's the thing, and this is what I mean by the story not connected to the mystery. There's no sense that these guys have any connection with the murder. Right. You know what I mean? In most ones, it would be, oh, it's the bad guys mm -hmm. who are trying to stop the good guy from solving the murder. Yeah. That's not what they're doing. No. They're here because this is a black man in their town, and they don't like this. See, and I think uh, that it, this is part of Endicott. I think Endicott has reached out to his yeah. and got them to yeah, maybe. Know, chase the guy down. Yeah, chase um, Virgil down. Um, and, and Virgil, I love that Tibbs, 
he's not no. it's not that he's not afraid but he's like this is what i'm doing now I'm, now I, i'm gonna fight for everything i got if i'm going out i'm going out like yeah. a fighter because he says to him come get some man to yeah. that guy which really unsettles that yeah. guy and goes like oh wait game time's over and then who shows up but chief gillespie it not even show up as he's not even show up like the cavalry no he just just calmly he, walks he saunters in, in yeah he saunters in. hands in his pockets what the hell he has cop power because yeah. he has cop power he's right. just like you're not going to mess with me. That's a good point. And 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 he, get, he there's no sense of this is a dangerous situation for me. You're right. As soon as he's here, he's like this, so he doesn't draw a gun. No, his hands are in his pockets. Right. And then he has this quick like double slap on one guy's face. That's great. And and you show man, this, this character has some power. Mm-hmm. The, the the punch of the midsection just wipes a guy out. Yep. And then hands go back in his pockets. Yeah. Here's the most interesting thing to see in me for me. Doesn't arrest him. No. I mean, think about that for a mm-hmm. moment. Think about that in our world. Three guys. Four. Four, four guys go to attack a police officer for no reason, mm-hmm. and the, the cop stops it and then just says, okay, go home. Yeah. That is a man locked into a certain world mm-hmm. so deeply that he cannot see. No, this was a crime. Yeah. This is attempted murder. Mm-hmm. Nope, just go home. You know. And also, what I also think that he's factoring in, and this may be some work we do as viewers, that the he probably knows that these are Endicott's people. He, right. he doesn't want to step on any. Because after Tibbs leaves, leaves he's still got to be the chief of police in this town. Yeah. And so the last thing he wants to do is step on the toes of the rich people who put him in the office, who pay his salary probably, all these kinds of things. So there's only so many ways that he can push back. And yep. I think in this situation, letting those kids go after he slapped, to, slapped him and then punched the other one in the gut is his way of being like, I've launched my warning. I don't need to arrest anybody. Get out of here. He probably right. knows these people's fathers and mothers too these kids as fathers and you know and of course so there's, yeah. there's a lot involved in the situation which is why he doesn't arrest them yeah, yeah. so uh tibbs goes off on a drive with sam to yeah. see everywhere he went it's such a great drive. yeah show up at the diner mm-hmm. um uh the guy hides the pie again yep. chief shows up we go into the diner i ain't serving him yeah but that's the that's <sighs> when we look at movies like this and they represent what was actually happening at the time that's the level of I get so angry when I see an uneducated, stupid white person in these situations still think they're above an educated black man. An educated black man with degrees, with accomplishment, best at what he does in his life. And yet someone who is uneducated, barely makes any money, runs a crappy diner, can think they're above him. And that's, that's, the, that's racism. That's the true uh, foundation of racism that no matter how accomplished you are I could be the worst person of my race and I still think I'm better than you well and I'll take it a step further yeah, than that sure. because uh, I'd, I like let's say this was an educated guy running his business yeah. and a poor black man walked in and he said I ain't serving you yeah I don't think that's terrible too yeah of is course, that, is that of because people get to a point of you know as soon as we start to go like well my level of privilege allows me to behave differently towards people than other people yeah. well you have now fucked up because yep. we need to treat people the same. Exactly. You know, is that if you run a business, then you run a business for everyone. Exactly. And, you know, and it all goes to not seeing someone as human. Right. It's like the only person you could say, I won't serve him based on the color of someone's skin, yeah. is you are not really human. Yeah. You know, I mean, certainly you're correct about his level of education yeah. and accomplishment. And this man is a really valuable man, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. It's like, you know, there's that expression of, I wouldn't do it to a dog. Yeah. You know, and that I always think about that expression is like, we treat dogs really, really well yeah you know but we're willing to treat humans really really badly yeah and you know and a lot of people are not willing to explore when they see a person of color with education be in charge of things 
Yeah. That's all. I'll leave it there. We'll just leave it there. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's it's a good point. So we go off on a drive with Sam, uh, and uh, Sam changes his route. Yeah. Skips the girl's house. (laughs) Yes, he does. Yeah. And Sydney noticed. How does he know he changed his route? I think he knows Sam, and I think he... As he's putting, well, and he things knows together. about the girl from the guy in the jail, exactly. Yeah, and that she told him all that kind of. He told her all that about her, and so all of that is there. And when he changes his route, Sam gets called out. And Sam gets upset because yeah. initially Sam is like he plays Sam too by saying like, "Oh yeah, yeah, go talk to the chief of police. You don't want to do anything outside the bounds. You don't want to." And he's like, "No, man, I can handle my stuff. I can handle my stuff." Right. And then you know, yeah. And and now next morning, chief goes to the bank, finds out Sam's made a big deposit. Yeah. And now. Now, because he knows Sam's lied, which uh, Virgil proved, yeah. Gillespie's like, Sam did it. Yep. And we have this confrontation because Tibbs knows that Sam didn't do it because he knows that Endicott did it. Right. And they are both wrong. Yeah. And both of their pride will not let them go of this thing. Right. And then Sam gets put in the jail. Yep. And the cell, Sam is protesting that he it was him from winning money. He got all that money from winning games or gambling or yeah. whatever. And so he event, he waited till he had a, a large amount to deposit. Then he deposited it. Now he's in jail with everyone else. Yeah. You now, know? of course, we know that Sam didn't do it. Right. Because we saw Sam discover the body. Yes. So we know he didn't do it. Right. But we're still thinking that Virgil's right. Because we're on team... The way the movie's structured, we're right. on team Tibbs. Yep. You know? And we saw that racist guy in the greenhouse. Yeah. And we go like, that's got to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Gillespie's wrong. It never occurs to us that we're also wrong. Yeah. That's kind of fascinating about how this movie is structured. Mm-hmm. Um, and here comes Purdy, the brother of the girl that we saw yeah. with Dr. Pepper. Yeah. And man, this is a weird scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The story that she spins about... Sam yeah. and the graveyard and deflowering her or whatever and right. then you know this is this a this a weirdness to it he says hey little girl you know what the coolest spot in town is and I said no Sam I guess I don't and he said a cemetery that's where Cause they got all them big, cool tombstones. Have a stretch out in a tombstone, Dolores. Feel all that nice, cool marble along your body. Yeah, it's there's a lot to unpack here because you can explore the idea of a woman lying about this whole situation, about you know to avoid getting in trouble, lies about being uh, taken advantage of yeah. because she is having relations. We with find out else, later yeah. with someone else, and she she can put Sam in this lurch because Sam's a good guy, and she can take advantage of Sam, and that's an unfortunate situation because she probably knows Sam stops by and watches her take her clothes off and watches her walk around well, the house, and that's what and like, she says, you know, it gets hot and blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, and it's like is you know Sam's a good guy. Sam's a guy who's been peeping tomming her. Yeah. But she's also been undressing purposely yes. in front of him. Yeah. And she and like she the way she tells the story, she really is enjoying Oh yeah. telling this the attention lie. of course, of course. And, and yeah, being it's 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 some rough stuff. Yeah, I hate to break it to you both no matter what your gender is, there are bad elements in both Absolutely. genders. Absolutely. It's irrelevant. Yeah. No one is not all women are completely good, not all men are completely good, not all men are completely bad, not all women are completely bad. Yeah. It's just these are elements and these happen sometimes. This, these kinds of things happen sometimes and certainly here you see that and poor Sam is in two away being taken advantage of in the situation yeah. I want to ask you a question about this scene do you think that they've been having relations as brother and sister because she, mm. the way she says like he leaves me alone at night all night he leaves like 
it, the way he's looking at her, the anger he has, to me, it feels like they might have had some... Because I don't see parents around at all. They yeah, live together as brother and sister. So to me, there's almost this weird kind of undercurrent, which happens sometimes in the South, of brothers and sisters sleeping together. And this whole... I think this is just kind of like subtly in there in the way they're interacting, the way she talks about it. So know? that particular thought had never occurred to me. Oh, okay. But that scene is weird. And yeah. they have a weird relationship. That's why and I think it is, it's weird. It is weird. Yeah. So, so I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, <laughs> and definitely the next time I watch it, that's not going to be in my head. Um, um, so yeah. Tibbs goes off to the jail cell, ignores yeah. Sam, talks to this other prisoner again to find out a little more information. He's interested in where someone goes to get an abortion. Yeah. We go, well, what does that mean? What's this about? Mm -hmm. And then before we're going to figure that out, we get a, qu a quick shot of some, you know, not so good guys who are clearly getting ready to maybe go after Tibbs again. Yeah. And then we get up, um, we get Tibbs, he's in some field, and he says, this is where he died. Yeah. And, and, this, and this is also where he admits... I wanted to get Virgil for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to get him. Yeah. So he has, just as we've seen Gillespie throughout the movie, yeah. come up against his own pride and then have to change. Now this is the moment where Virgil has to change. Yeah, and he credits Gillespie for it. He said, yeah. you made me aware of my emotions or my, you know, my letting clouding my judgment. My emotions, my desire to combat this racism, clouding my judgment. This, right. I'm now following the evidence where it's supposed to take right. me. Yeah. Right. Well, and this is really where we want to go to. Yeah. Whereas that it's not either racism or or the the seeing the world framed mm -hmm. by race that is motivating us, but mm -hmm. actually just what is the truth? Let's do the right thing. And also, what's best in movies, Steve, with these characters is arcs. This Absolutely. is his arc. Totally. This is his arc. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And he also reveals the key piece of information. Sam can't have done it. He can't drive two cars at the same time. Right. That's such a great moment. Yeah. Sam can't drive two cars at the same time. And then, yeah. yeah, it's so great. We continue to see bad guys looking for Virgil. And yeah. where's Virgil? He's in the chief's house. Yep. This is an amazing scene. Yeah. yeah. You know, Virgil, you are among the chosen few. How's that? Well, I think that you're the first human being that's ever been in here. You can't be too careful, man. <laughs> you know a lot of things, don't you? Well, guess what do you know about insomnia? Bourbon can't cure it. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Finally, a moment of con real honest connection when they drop their walls of being tough guys doing their jobs, of being a black man and a white man. They just, just like two normal human beings, have a conversation about their loneliness and both almost being married. Yeah. You married? No. Ever been? No. Ever been close to it? close to it and it's two cops right and they're having a drink mm -hmm. and what's so amazing and sad about this scene is it goes to a certain point yeah and then gillespie has to shut it yeah, down yeah it does because once again he sees a black he, a black man giving him sympathy yeah i can't have that you can't have it yeah 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 don't you get just a little lonely no lonelier than you man Smart black boy. I don't need it. 
and then off goes uh, so great. off goes Sidney Poitier to somewhere Whitey can't go. Right. Uh, and goes to meet um, what's her name? Because he says like he says uh, you you said you gave me till morning, man. Right. You gave me one again. Right. Once again, one of those like acting moments from Sidney Poitier. You gave me till morning, man. And he so, goes yeah. off to meet B. Richards, who's a yeah. very well known theater actor. Yes. Been in tons of stuff. Also plays his mom in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's right. In the same That's year. That's right. And she is this abortionist. And she we reveal that oh she, that. That this girl has come here to get an abortion. Yeah, she's going to come. Yeah, she's exactly. going to come to get an abortion. She has like the Jamaican accent. Yep. Right, which is interesting, and I, I love the fact that this is once again it speaks to what you talked about, Steve. There were you, there were underground places that everybody knew about in the African American yep. community of where to go and do things if you needed to have something done. Right. Right, and he plays to her money uh, interests and all this kind of stuff. And Beebridge does such a fantastic job. She's a great actress. You know, because she says why. Why you want to help the police like that? They steal in your soul. They chew you up and spit you out. And he says, there's colored time in jail and there's white time in jail. And the worst kind of jail time you can do is color time. Yeah. And that's how he gets her to break down and tell yep. him the truth. Yeah. And in comes the girl. Yeah. He goes out after her. Mm-hmm. And who do we discover? The murderer. The murderer, exactly. That weird guy for the diner. <laughs> Mr. Hide the Pie. Yeah. Yeah. And now, but now, who also shows up? But the brother. Right. And a and, bunch of, the, and, and all those guys all over yep. again. Yep. And how does Potty get through this moment? He ha- he uses his logic. There's nothing else he can use. Yeah. He's got no weapons, nope. really, other than his brain. And so, which sometimes can be the most deadliest weapon. Look in her purse. What's that mean? She's got $100 to pay for an abortion. Listen to that. Black face. Money she got from Ralph. You're going to listen to him? He got her to tell you that Sam Wood did it. He made a fool out of you, Birdie. And turns the crowd on each other so much by revealing that, you know, it was actually that guy who had right. impregnated uh, Purdy's sister and was paying for an abortion. And they both end up, sh- they, he shoots him. Yep. He shoots the brother dead and the uh, portier arrests the guy. Now, why do you think they didn't have the brother shoot that guy? Was it just too convenient to have him shoot him with a shotgun, have a back and forth kind of end, like where they have a Mexican stand up and shoot each other to death? Do you think they needed him to stay alive so that they could prove they got him? And, and that's my gut. Is okay. that the, is that is that they we wanted to have because the, the movie is confusing, right? And having the confession of like, no, no, this is actually what happened, right? Is I think useful. Yeah, um, that that's my gut about it. But mm-hmm. but it easily could have been the like we just kill each other. Yeah, um, yeah. But that, I think that might have been less satisfying. So we yes. get the, so get the confession, and then we finally get back to the train station. And we have our goodbye. Yeah. And it's a really nice scene. Mm-hmm. And a handshake. And Virgil, you take care. You hear? Yeah. There's some real compassion there. Right. Yeah. And I think we cannot have this ending without that scene with them exchanging stories about their loneliness. Agreed. Agreed. There's no way that scene is earned or has the weight to it if we don't have that one two minute minute and a half exchange between them in that scene uh when they're having a drink and this is something i want to bring up steve this is interesting because i as i've read read about these films and as we as people have done analysis of these kinds of films that deal with racism in the south and different areas of the country they always say that they have to end with a way with a white man and the black man coming to a resolution about it Hmm. and all, all of these films end that way and it's a way of like excusing it. It's a way of saying like it's okay mm. that they were racist. They came around eventually, and so I wonder how much of this 
is truth and how much of it is necessary and do we do that to make ourselves feel better about ourselves as a country what is the logic here because you definitely see this here with gillespie putting yeah. him on the train because there's no hug or any hand i don't i think there's a handshake, handshake at all yeah. yeah there's just like hey you take care and it's enough of a moment right, right. it's enough of a connective moment but is that a negative? Is that really a negative? Because some people push back against it, just like those people who wrote articles against Portier, this idea of him being the not really black. You know, there are people in the in who are the more uh, extreme side of this film analysis who say we never have a film about racism where it ends where the person is 100% racist, even though we followed them all the way through, and there's no resolute. Like, we don't get to feel... Uh, negative about the person at the end. What do you think about this? Well, it's a really complicated question, and as you would imagine, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, okay. uh, so here, here's here's what I feel, and it, and it relates a lot to the other movie that Sidney Poitier makes right after this. Yeah. Is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? You know, again, this book, Pictures of the Revolution, is really about that. This is the turning point in film from the old studios to the new mm-hmm, studio. Mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, directed by Stanley Kramer, is very much the it is a movie directed towards white people. Yeah. You know, for mainstream white people. And it's about Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, more than it's much more than it's about Sidney Poitier. Yeah. And the, the reason I bring it up is part of the thing you want to ask is how far do I want to move the ball forward? Yeah. Like your first job is to make an entertaining film. Right. You know, and the second and then you go like I have an agenda, I have a social idea that I want to put forth. Mm-hmm. The more radical I make my social like let's say my opinion is really radical. Yeah. You know. And the more hard-hitting and radical I make my idea, the less I'm going to move the people that are most against that radical idea. And so uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is a huge hit, is not radical. Right. It is very like very middle of the road, mm-hmm. you know. It it's not challenging, right? And it's like, well, who am I trying to affect? Mm-hmm. Am I trying to affect? If I do the radical one, the people that already are radical and agree with me, they're going to go, yeah, this is awesome, right? But they already agreed with me, right? If I do this, guess who's coming to dinner? There are people that had never thought about uh, an African American marrying a white person yeah. in the same way, and they might go, huh? Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of people talk about in terms of gay rights. Uh, is Will and Grace. Yeah. That Will and Grace, which isn't particularly radical, no. but the whole country watched it, mm-hmm. and you started to see things in a different way. Another one, so I was making this, a, a, I'll do a quick digression. Sure, sure. Uh, as I've talked about many times, this guy, Mike Hoover, he, he mm. filmed in Afghanistan. He's embedded with the Mujahideen during the war against the Soviets for three years. Wow. And he uh, uh, has lots of contacts there, and he is, we've tried to create multiple projects about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And we were developing a feature film that was about an American Marine that got wounded and got sort of uh, found by the the Kuchu, which is a, a nomadic tribe. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a fish out of water and that he kind of learned things about their world and they learned about his world and that was the kind of movie. And it was fairly on the radical side. Mm-hmm. And right as we're working on that, the movie Avatar comes out, which is exactly the same structure. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that it was, Avatar is a... Anti-corporate, pro-environment, yeah. pro-indigenous kind of people movie. Yes, it is. But it's subtle. You know, it's mostly a big rollicking sci-fi adventure with yeah. great special effects. And so the thing I started thinking about between the movie I was trying to make and this other movie is like, well, do you want to move 
a very small group of people who only a few people would want to see this Afghanistan yeah. movie yeah. a big distance or do you want to move everybody a little distance yeah. and so the, so I know that I've gone a long way around no, this is a getting great to your, point, though. your answer of your question is yeah. that the them coming together at the end is more likely to get a lot of people yeah. to think about this issue in the way you want them to think about yeah. and the more radical vision might be more realistic or right. hard hitting but it might also exclude some of the people that you're trying to convince well and I think this is a great uh thing you bring up Stephen. a great point you make because if it's a studio film you can make it this way you have to make it this way because you're trying to move a large number of people a short distance with an independent film you can make exactly. it you can make it you're moving a little bit of people a longer distance and that to me is important to have that balance between the two because 12 years a slave is one of the most recent ones to deal with this kind right. of racism michael fassbender is never uh, tried, never convicted, yep. never punished for the terrible things he does as the owner of a plantation and the terrible things he does to Chiwetel Ejiofor's character yep. and Lupita Nyong'o in the film. Right. There's, he's never uh, punished for any of it. But we see the happy ending of him finding his family again, whatever. So to me, those those are the kind of things that you do in a studio film, but a more independent film might have a harder edge. Absolutely. And so we have to have that balance. Well, so, and one, one thing so too. So I push back against people who have an issue with things ending in a happier way with racism films. I like the idea that they do on the mainstream films. Well, the, the other thing, to, if you want a to, to help with a social movement, yep. people don't really go off to work towards a social movement out of sadness. Yeah. You have to have hope. Yep. If you just go, look at this, it's hopeless. People right. go, well, fuck that. I can't do anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> l- like you finish, you know, you think about like an inconvenient <laughs> truth or something. It's still hopeful. Yeah. You know, here's a whole bunch of horrible things, but we can do something. Right. If you don't have the we can do something, you don't get people getting up and doing something. Right. You know, and I think that's really key. Yeah. Um, and, but, but this moment of, you know, in the heat of the night is definitely, this is the darkest one probably seen so far yeah, yeah, yeah. by mainstream Hollywood. When they first showed the film, they showed it in San Francisco at a sneak preview and everybody laughed. Ooh. And Jewison went, oh my God, I messed up. Like this, <sighs> they think it's a comedy. Yeah. And Hal Ashby's who at the screening said, no, no, these are all the young people. They're laughing at the situation they're with your movie trust me yeah um and that of course was right is yeah. that is that what happened was the young people who saw it were ahead of it yeah and like going yes and they loved watching uh poitier just kind of take everybody yep. apart but then the older generation saw it a different way in this movie which is a fairly small budget movie yeah becomes a really big hit yeah which brings us to the 1967 oscars uh where it's got a bunch of nominations the other movies nominated for best picture are bonnie and clyde the graduate mm-hmm. which we've already talked about mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which we just talked about, yeah. and Dr. Doolittle, for some strange, <laughs> well, of course. strange bizarre reason. Not, not, not really bizarre at all, to um, be honest with you. Yeah. And two days before they're supposed to hold the Oscars, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. Oh. And Poitier and uh, Sammy Davis Jr., who was going to sing yeah. Talk to the Animals, and Belafonte, and a whole bunch of other people said, we're not going. Wow. And so they postponed the Oscars. At first, the you know the kind of Hollywood mm-hmm. powers that be said, no, the show must go on. Right. And then they realized, no, no, we can't have a big Hollywood celebration. So they postponed it a few days. And then this tension of the assassination of Martin Luther mm-hmm. King mm-hmm. goes through uh, those Oscars. And the Oscars are won sort of all over the place. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde wins a few Oscars. Doolittle wins a few Oscars. And then slowly the momentum starts for In the Heat of the Night, yeah. including... Uh, Steiger winning Best Actor, yeah, which he really didn't expect, right? But then Mike Nichols wins Best Director for Graduate, which is completely deserved, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. And then uh, in the heat of the night, takes home Best Picture. It's surprising to me that Steiger wins Best Actor because it's really Portier who's doing the acting in this movie. I mean, Steiger's fantastic. He is. Don't get me wrong, but 
I think Poitier deserved the Oscar more than... He didn't get nominated. Stargard. And he wasn't even nominated, yeah. right? And some of the people argue, well, because he... Guess who's coming to dinner and Lily, and uh, To Serve With Love were yeah. all in the same year, so which one do you nominate him for? Well, pick one. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Pick one and let him win for that. And uh, so to me, it was interesting that he wasn't nominated for any of these amazing performances. And that lets you know that even within Mr. even within the Mr. and Mrs. Progressive of Hollywood, there's still there was still that that vibe of racism towards the African American actor. Well, and this is the end this is the end for him in yeah. a lot of ways. It's like this he peaks, he's the number one box office yes. star in nineteen sixty seven, and then it's all downhill. And he right. knew it too. Yeah. He knew it. And part of it is because he had been labeled as the establishment guy. And yeah. this is nineteen sixty seven. The Black Panthers are just gonna come along. Mm-hmm. I mean this is like the world is changing so so fast yeah. and we're going to move into black exploitation. we're going to move into all this other stuff right. and Sydney doesn't get brought along no you know? he becomes much more of a director and yeah yeah yeah, which is a shame because it is. whenever he shows up in anything, it's great. through this whole time you always enjoy him in the 70s and 80s like I, his his uh, films with Bill Cosby and and I don't want to you know you know whatever your issues are with Bill Cosby absolutely totally respect that but they're some of the funniest Uptown Saturday Night is one of the funniest sure. films and to know that he could do comedy like that is a shocking thing for for Portier yeah. but he does do these other smaller films throughout this time to stay working to stay alive to stay do whatever making his money maybe insurance whatever whatever you know these kinds of situations but yeah he becomes a director he starts to expand and he becomes a vocal person too in these movements Absolutely. and the social issues and what have you and so much so that he is there when Denzel wins yeah. uh, the best actor award uh, right. for training day you yeah. know and it brings a tear to his eye you know and so yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. What, what are your final thoughts uh, I think this is a fantastically important film no matter what your feelings are about race and racism in this country now in 2017 I think this is an important film if you can open your heart and your mind to watch it to enjoy it to explore it it is not a black and white film for lack of a better term it is more about the exploration of the complexities of humanity the gray areas how we can't always all be good or always all be bad and sometimes yes no matter how intelligent we are or how limited intelligence we are we give in to our emotions that dictate our judgments or our our points of view but if we can pull ourselves out of that then we can look at things with a bit more perspective um, um, and be more circumspect about things that are going on in the world in front of us no matter what our jobs are or what our lives are and it's important to explore this and see these two characters in that way you have you know the chief of police it doesn't seem that he's that college educated guy he's just street smart and then you have Poitier, who's more intelligent, and of course he's got his abilities with analyzing, uh, analyzing crime scenes, analyzing the bodies, or whatever. But they have to work together because both sides of that humanity as men have to come out in this situation for them to solve the crime. And so, to me, it's about coming together, you know, accepting each other's differences, but also finding the commonality within each other. And that's the only way we survive as a country and as a as people on this planet is finding our commonness, not exploiting our differences. And I think the film does that. I, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and and for me, like what I keep coming back to is that dealing with race in this country mm-hmm. or really anywhere, it's not easy. Yeah. And any movie or any person that tries to present this situation as easy is missing the point. Yes. This is not simple. And part of the reason it's not simple is that people are not simple. Yeah. And what this movie does so well is that it it gives you complicated people. It doesn't just give you the good, everything perfect black man or right. the racist cop. It gives you these people that are 
proud and complicated mm -hmm. and angry mm -hmm. and stubborn and wanting to do the right thing and resisting doing the right thing yes. and finding a way to interact and coming together, but only coming together so far mm -hmm. because people are complicated. And to the idea that I think, as we talked about before, of like, oh, let's overcome racism. Well, mm -hmm. that's not easy. Right. And we don't overcome it in a two-hour movie mm. or even in 20 years or 100 years people are complicated and difficult yeah. and that we have to look at them that way if we in order to even begin to solve these problems right. if we just look at them as like well just be a good person just don't be racist right. well that's that's not so easy you know and so this movie kind of is it the biggest movie of all time? No, I don't think so. I think it flies under the radar in a lot of ways. And yet I'm really glad that I watched it again yep. because it is so well made and so compelling. And as I told you, I was watching the commentary track yeah. because I'm trying to get the information for the podcast and stuff. Right. And then I kept having to stop and go back and watch the scene because the scenes are so good mm -hmm. and so compelling. It's like, no, no, I need to know everything these characters are saying. Yeah. Um, so that's what we think about in the heat of the night. We'd love to know what you think about the heat of the night. You can visit us at Facebook, at The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on YouTube. Please leave your comments on iTunes. Please leave your comments on YouTube. Yeah. There's nowhere to leave comments on Stitcher that I can find. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. How dare they? <laughs> um, we would love to hear them. And we would yeah. also love you to join us on our Patreon page. Yeah. We've just launched this. The response has been amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, we are so grateful for everyone who's who's pledged. And you could get all sorts of great uh, rewards from us if, yeah. you, if you pledge on our Patreon page. Yeah, we'll, we'll have giveaways coming up here as we progress through, the, through this podcast and, and the amount of episodes and the guests we bring on. And also, you'll be able to pick a movie that we can talk about if you pledge That's a certain right. amount for a certain amount of time. You can pick a movie that we talk about and somebody mentioned moonwalker on twitter the michael jackson what? moonwalker oh, film and i right. said if you pledge enough why not we can certainly <laughs> talk about it so. um and, and we've gotten already gotten some great pledges yeah. and yep. some great suggestions of movies so don't worry we're going to be doing some of those really soon yep so that's patreon.com slash the cinephiles and uh if you want to reach me you can reach me at sr morris john where can they reach you you can always reach me at the roca says t-h-e-r-o-c-h-a uh, S-A-Y-S on Twitter and on Instagram uh, the uh, Outlaw Nation podcast every Thursday morning on SK Plus podcast channel that's when we release it uh, you go take a look at there please subscribe there and listen to the stuff We got I have so many guests coming on over the next few weeks Steve will be on in a little bit to talk about politics at some point and then uh, also uh, every, 10, every Friday at 10 a.m. on the Collider YouTube channel Movie Talk on there talking about that day's movie news all right, so that's some great uh, Roca stuff, some that's Outlaw Nation stuff. <laughs> the Outlaw Nation is growing, friends. That's right. Get and, on board. Yeah, and that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.